Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Coming up on episode 337 of Wheel Bearings, we got the Ford F-250, the Subaru Outback, Paris raising charging parking fees for large, heavy vehicles, Ford sets up a skunk works to develop low-cost EVs, Americans are losing trust in AVs, Cybertruck's got some really significant safety issues. Kia uh, unveils refreshed Carnival and K5 in Chicago. Ford's killing active parking assist. The Chrysler Halcyon EV concept. The pole-to-pole Nissan Aria and more. All that coming up next. This is episode 337 of Wheel Bearings. I am Sam Abul Samad from Guidehouse Insights. And I am Nicole Wakeman from The Road Reflected. And Robbie is off visiting family this weekend. So it's just the two of us. So it's the Sam and Nicole show today. Yes. And uh, we actually saw each other in person again a couple of days ago in Chicago. We did at the Chicago Auto Show. What did you think of the Auto Show? The amazing shrinking Auto Show. I know. Um, it felt really small. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, t- t- typically the Chicago show, you know, it's a held at McCormick Place, which is an enormous convention center mm-hmm. in Chicago. And usually it takes up two halls, the North Hall and the South Hall. But this year with the absence of Stellantis um, and hence the absence of Camp Jeep, uh, which is their big indoor test drive area that they always set up in the back part of the hall. Um, there was a bunch of extra space available in the South Hall. So they condensed everything down to one hall and used the North Hall the day before the media previews for the concept and technology garage, mm-hmm. which typically in the past years has been in another hall across the road. Right. Um, but, um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a bad show. Uh, no. and, I, and you were at the the mama breakfast on Thursday morning, right? Yes. You hear Jen Morand, uh, who's the co-president of the the show. Yes. Um, talking about all the shows. And, and one of the things she talked about was, you know, <laughs> she said, you know, talking to a group of several hundred media, you know, it's like auto shows are not about you guys. Right. You know, it's, she did. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about the consumers. So when I say you guys, I'm referring to literally to us, not, not to you that are listening right. to us. The media, like it used to be like the media days were a big deal. And there was, there's, I mean, doing auto shows is incredibly expensive for the automakers to, the, to pay for the space, to pay for everything. Like every last little thing that you see on the floor, like the carpet, the everything is an added cost for them. And when they do these huge booths just to create, like, I still think the Subaru booth is one of the most just beautiful, incredible, amazing. They make it look like an outdoor setting. That is not an inexpensive proposition. So they're doing that's all multi-million this. dollars. Yeah, to millions set one of, those of dollars. Up. And that's is what after you considered, you know, actually building the structures and everything. Just right. doing the installation at an auto show is multi-millions of dollars. And then when you add on that, and that's all for all of us, right? The media sees it and the consumer see it. You guys get to see it when you show up at the auto show. But then when they do a big debut there for us, 
Like they charge them for every single chair they put on the floor for crying out loud. Trust like, me. It I, is- <laughs> I've been on the other side of that. I, I know how that works. Right. I mean, so- you're, you're talking, you know, $5,000 for an Ethernet drop to use right? for like two days. Yeah. So it's it's crazy expensive for them. And there's a better there are better ways for them to get media attention for mm-hmm. their products. But auto shows are still a great way for consumers to come after we all leave town. And I still think it like, you know, you and I see we see cars all the time. We get new cars in our driveway. We're on these launches. We constantly see new cars. The general public doesn't. And you don't want to have to drive from your Ford dealership to your Jeep dealership to your whatever Toyota dealership and have that run around and go to each. You know, it's it's a process when you go to a dealership and by and large, no one likes it. If you walk into an auto show, they are all there. All of their cars are there. You can see every single car that you want to see all in the same space. Almost everyone. Almost, yeah. <laughs> um, not no longer the G. I mean, but like you can see so many of the cars in the same space, and it's kind of fun, you know. And they have fun stuff, little things you can pretend you're driving, little like virtual reality kind of stuff, and it's it's a neat experience. So I think for consumers, auto shows are just as good as ever. The only sad part is, is people like uh, companies like Stellantis. Uh, pulling out that was a a big deal and that was kind of sad because the camp jeep thing was really cool now they have the bronco thing that's same exact idea but a bronco instead of a jeep you still have that so you can still ride around in the fancy artificially created off-road thing that ford has put up and that's really cool right and they have the ev test track back where the camp jeep used to be yeah um where you can try out a bunch of different evs like in chicago this year they've got you know, Volkswagen ID4, uh, they have uh, some BMW stuff, they've got uh, some GM stuff. So there's a, a bunch of different things. I think the Lucid Air is there. So, you know, if you're thinking about a Lucid Air, right? you want to go for a ride in one, it's all, it's all right there in the show hall. And that's great. Like, think about it. Where If you if you tried to go ride in a Lucid Air and two or three other EVs, because you wanted to know what it was like for with an EV and just wanted a quick ride in each one, that would take you your entire weekend of going from place to place to get time and to give the dealership your information and, and get it. To, you know, it takes forever. To, to, it would be several weekends to ride, you know, half a dozen different vehicles because it's a pain in the butt. It's a process. You go to an auto show and they have these little test tracks. You get to ride along in one. It's like, oh, that was just half my day. And I had fun because there's also fun stuff. This one, Okay. Did you see they have some fun stuff that made the Chicago auto show a little more like, you know, how home shows always have random stuff, like get these sharp knives, like whatever, like random. Mm-hmm. There was um, there was a booth that was selling some kind of fancy hot sauce. Now, these, of course, aren't open when you and I were there. But the, did you see there was a hot sauce booth? I'm, I missed sauce. that one. There but... was a hot sauce booth. There was also a booth for Weber grills. I did see that. Yeah. And they had the coolest little black jackets that had a little red Weber grill like thing. And I'm like, I, I need one of those when I'm uh, grilling I, on my grill. Right. Like, I'm like, we have a Weber. I want a Weber, Weber grill <laughs> jacket. It was the cutest thing. But so they have some fun stuff that's like, it's so it's, it's car show plus a little bit extra. So there's some other little fun stuff to cut, kind of check out where you're there. And there was like, they have booths from like uh, the state police and all sorts of different things. It'll be there when the show is open. So it's kind of just neat to to see all this. So I think for, you know, for media, it's not what it once was and it's changed quite a bit, but for consumers, it's still a fantastic deal. Yeah. I mean, the first auto show I covered as media was the 2007 Detroit show. And, you know, in those days, you know, everybody was there. I mean, it, was, yeah. it really was the North American international auto show. So you mm-hmm. had every automaker there and, 
you know, it was two and media previews were two and a half days of yeah. solid morning to evening press conferences. And it was nonstop. You literally yes. went from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. You never stopped. And and as part of the auto blog team, we had like, I think nine or 10 people there. And mm-hmm. we were, you know, we, in the morning before the first press conferences, we would sit down and go through the day's schedule and we would get assigned which press conferences we were going to cover. And it was like two and a half or two, two, at least two of us at each press conference. Hi, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, hi, Russ. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, it'd be one of us to, to write the other one do photography, you know, and then as soon as the press conference was done, you know, get some, um, get some photos, uh, you know, after, after the, uh, the press scrum, everybody rushes back to the media center, write up our story. And there's already another, the next pair are already, in good spots at the next press yeah. conference, which would be like 10 minutes later. And, you know, and we you just, had to we stage your spot. Like if you wanted day. to have a yeah. spot to record video, mm-hmm. like if you actually had to do video for an outlet, you had to be there like an hour before the, sh- you had to miss the prior press conference. Yes. Cause you has to, had to be standing there, secure your spot in the stage. So you'd have your camera and you'd have a spot where you could see it. Because if you waited until five, 10 minutes before it was completely packed with people. It's like, well, good luck. You're just going to have to hold up your camera over everyone's heads. Yeah. So, you know, my guess is that next year, next January, when the Detroit show moves back to the winter schedule and the reason why they always did it in in January instead of in the warmer months is, you know, because it it was originally intended as a consumer show. It was a place for people, you know, in the, in the depths of winter, you know, typically spring is when a lot of people go out and shop for cars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, doing it in, in January in Detroit, February in, in Chicago, people would come out, they get you, like you said, they get that chance to, you know, kick the tires on all these different brands, you know, sit down, take a look at them, take a close look at them, learn a little more about them, and then figure out what they wanted to actually go out and test drive, you know, in a couple of months. It kind of lets you, it lets you get it like a, you know, you you have 10 different cars you're trying to look at. Well, at least you can get an eyeballs on all of them. You know, you can see them kind of get a few details and think, oh, this doesn't look the way I thought it looked when I was looking at it on my laptop and get a better idea of what it looks like. So then you can narrow it down. So like you said, springtime comes around, you've done your research, you know what the car is, you've got some information, you had eyeballs on it, you've taken a look at it, you kind of see whether or not you like it. And you can go take it for a drive in the spring and really figure out which one you want to buy. And doing the winter is perfect. I mean, we used to have a car, um, a very small um, like auto show here in New England it happened in January because once again, no, everyone, no one has anything to do. It's cold going inside and wandering around and seeing the auto show is a fun thing to do. And then when spring time came around, you could go out and you could buy your car. And my guess is come January because the, the, the 2025 Detroit show is actually going to be starting right on top of CES oh, that they probably won't even bother with a media day. They'll do the industry you preview day. Yeah. Where where all the engineers come out and measure everybody else's products um, and take notes, but I I would be surprised if they even bother really? with a media you day. Really, you don't think yeah. they'll do a media day at all? No, because I don't think automakers will. You know, will just I don't think they will even want to spend the money um, to to do it to to show up. I mean, the past two years when they've done it in September, it's been uh, Ford, Stellantis, and GM is the only ones. Stellantis has already said they're not doing auto shows anymore, so right. now you're so down to Ford and that. GM. And that's and, a huge footprint. Stellantis is not yeah. one brand. That's a lot of cars. Right. And, you know, the, the 2023 show in September, the, you know, yes, all three of them participated, 
but there were no actual all new products. Everything, all that, that you know, you had the Ford F-150, which was a, re- a mid-cycle refresh. You had the Jeep Gladiator, mid-cycle refresh, mm-hmm. and the Cadillac CT5, mid-cycle refresh. There was mm-hmm. no actual new product unveiled there. There was some new product shown, but it was stuff that had actually been unveiled, you know, a month, two months before at standalone events like the the new uh, GMC Acadia and Chevy Traverse. And, and Rem- the Do you remember Escalade. when at the auto show, like, like really old school – now, even sometimes when the reveal is happening, we've already gotten all this embargoed stuff, so mm-hmm. we know what we're about to get. Do you remember when you really, truly had no clue? You're like, I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember. There'd just and, be a car on the stage. You'd be like, mm, I don't know. When they pull the silk off, we'll find out. You, literally, you had no information until that instant. And then they'd send you the press kit. Like, here's your press kit. You'd be like, ah, and everybody's trying to write. Because nobody knew anything, literally until the moment that they revealed it at the show. Yeah, I think one of the last great... Um, you know, press conferences, Detroit show press conferences was probably in 2015, January, 2015, uh, the Ford press conference where they rolled out. And, you know, I knew what was coming only because six months before I had still been working in Ford communications and I had actually worked on some of that (laughs) stuff. Yeah. But nobody else knew what was coming. So, you know, and there weren't even really many um, much, you know, informed speculation about it. So they started off, they brought out the new, the second generation F-150 Raptor. Then they brought out the GT350, the Shelby GT350 with mm-hmm. the, the flat plane crank V8. And then there was the one more thing, which was the Ford GT. I remember that one. And that one just, and you know, that one, I knew the GT was coming. But prior to my departure from Ford, I had not yet actually been down to the studio to see it. So I had no idea what it looked like. So even you were surprised. Yeah. You know what? I remember that press conference. And I also remember, and this was funny, just like, you know, the set. We talk about how EVs don't have sounds. And there's something about the sound mm-hmm. of the exhaust and the sound of an engine on these cars with these all this power. I was sitting. Ford had a huge booth. And they had almost like a little media center within their booth. Like it was a tables that you mm-hmm. could sit and work at and do stuff. And you were sort of still sort of like in the background of the Ford booth. Well, because they didn't tell you the GT was coming, it wasn't already there. They literally pulled it onto the show floor from that debut. And I'm sitting there working rumble of people and whatever. And all of a sudden I was like, Brrr. I'm like, what the heck? As they drove it on, I remember the sound of it. It's like, what? Oh, that's- Put it up on the turntable in there. Yes, and you yeah. can hear them. And it's not like they're dry. They're barely driving when they're- in, And there's all these people. They're moving out of the way. But I can just remember the sound of it and thinking, what in the name of it? I'm like, oh, the GTs arrived at the actual Ford <laughs> booth. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, um, enough about that. Yes. Let's let's move on to what we're driving. What what have you had this week? So I have the Subaru Outback this week, which I feel like, you know, I, I used to say if I got a really like snow worthy car, our snowstorms were going to be nothing. And if I got a like, you know, something like a Miata, it's like the one inch snowstorm was going to be like five feet. So I've had this. We've had the most beautiful weather. <laughs> it's been sunny. It's been it's like in the high fifties yesterday. I went out with just a shirt and like a little little tiny light spring jacket yesterday. This goes back tomorrow, and on Tuesday we're getting almost <laughs> snow. I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> so if it was snowing, this would be a great little choice. Supers are great in the snow. Everyone I've ever had, when you take a super out in the snow, they're just they're champs. They just get through it. They're not fancy, but they do the job. The super outback um for twenty four has a. It's the same engine that it had before. It's a 2.4 liter um, with 182 horsepower, 176 
pound feet of torque. It has a CVT. Um, not a super fan of the CVT in super. Sometimes they get a little, eh, eh. they get a little cranky when you're when you're accelerate hard. They're like I don't wanna. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's not horrible. You know, once upon a time CVTs were just heinous. Like the sound of them would just like nails in a chalkboard. But it's not my favorite one. Um, I do like this. This the trim I had was actually it's funny. I was getting super confused looking online, but it says this is the Touring XT. And it was weird because when I looked online at first, it was like Touring and XT, but mine literally says Touring XT. So I don't know if there was some change between this and that, but I had the Touring XT according to the full, complete, every last detail Monroney that is laminated that Subaru put in the car. Thank wow. you, Subaru. I was so happy. I grabbed it from the car. I'm like, you are kidding me. Everything is on here. Right down to now you win because Robbie is not here. What do you think the destination and delivery is on this? Oh, um, how about this? I 12. see you only win if you come in within two hundred dollars. You okay. have to be. Um, I'm going to say uh, twelve ninety five. Holy bejesus! It's exactly twelve ninety five. Oh, wow. Did you just look, or did you I really did not. just guess that? Wow. I, I did not. <laughs> I, I I actually have. I, I was trying to load the Subaru page just to check the the trim levels, yeah. and it, I'm getting a page unresponsive error from Chrome. Um. So uh, it was a complete guess on my part. Okay. Well, very, okay. I'll believe you. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I have no laptop for service at all right now. Yeah. Cause when you look on their, um, on their media site, which is what I was using, it has a touring and an XT trim. I don't know if somehow something changed or whatever. And there is a touring XT, but either way, this is clearly top trim level. I mean, it's beautiful inside. It has these sort of uh, chocolate brown kind of leather seats and they're a little bit, you know, it's got a little extra bolstering, not so not sports car bolstering, but keep you in place on the bumps and dips. And if you're going to take this and do a little bit of off-road stuff, you know, if you've got something more rugged, then you kind of want that extra bolstering to hold you in as you're bouncing about. Um, the base trim, which is literally called base, has um, <laughs> a dual screen situation. It's a seven inch display and then a seven inch touch screen. Um, that's just on literally the very base trim. The rest of them get an 11.6 inch, um, I'm trying to say vertical screen yeah. that's mounted there. Um, this portrait, this, uh, portrait. Thank you. I'm like, what's that word? Uh, portrait style screen. I like that screen. I like the 11.6 inch. It's great. I, I am not a fan of the seven and seven setup that Subaru has. And I mean, as I recall, they've had it and they sort of like, gradually it's like lower and lower trim. Now it's just the base trim. So I'd imagine at some point it'll go poof. And we'll just yeah. have the big screen. Um, but it, when you see it with that, the other screen setup, um, that's like the biggest drawback to getting the base trim in this. You know, you always sacrifice something when you go with the, the start, you know, the lowest trim in a lineup. But I feel like in the Super Epic, that's a pretty big one. Having those that dual screen setup, I'm not a fan of. But this with the 11.6 inch, I love it. And it's a nice responsive screen. Very easy to see. Very easy to reach. So I'm, I like this one. Um, and the pricing, so it's twelve ninety five for the destination. With the destination, the total price on this one is forty four two thirty one. So it's a decent price. And you have all wheel drive. It's capable. It has, you know, it has that X mode, which which helps you with traction and stuff when you're off road or when you're just dealing with the snow that I'm going to get right after they take this away. Um, <laughs> so and, and you'll probably get a Miata. And I, so there's probably a Miata due for delivery on Monday afternoon. I'm, I have no doubt, Sam, a Miata. With summer tires. With summer tires. Summer performance slicks probably is what we've got on there. Um, 
So this, I mean, and it's a great, you know, you think of, I always say, you know, Subaru and they, they, they sell themselves this way. They are the outdoorsy, adventure active lifestyle. They've got statistics about their customers and the number of them that go like kayaking and snowboarding and all these things. And people who buy Subarus really do trend way higher on all those things than, you know, other car makers. But I think the thing about Subaru, and I find this neat, it's such a popular brand in New England um, because it's just hangs in there forever. They're durable, they're rugged, they'll handle snow, they'll handle muck, they'll handle your dog in the car, they'll handle your kids in the car. They're a good, like, I don't want something fancy pants I have to worry about, like, oh God, I got salty. You know, my kids have snow and salt in their boots and now they just put them on the seats and the seats are ruined. No, the Subaru laughs at your children's snowy boots. <laughs> it has no problem with any of that. So it, you don't really have, I mean, active lifestyle, 100%. But if you just want a nice, rugged, reliable, can stand up to wear and tear car, a Subaru also fits that. And I like this. It's comfy. It has a comfy back seat. It's got that nice, you know, tailgate. So there's uh, or lift gate. So there's plenty of room in the cargo area. I'm, I'm a fan of Subarus. I, and I feel like for, what did I just say about $44,000 for this with a top trim with all the bells and whistles, like the, you know, the, the heated seats and all that you're getting, you're not getting a premium car. It's not a Mercedes and it doesn't look like one inside, but you're getting a premium version of a Subaru and it still feels like you're like, okay, I don't feel like I'm on the base trim. Got a nice infotainment, have these features. It's comfy. It's all these things. It looks like a nice car inside and out. So I am a fan of the Outback and I thoroughly enjoyed having it this weekend. Wish that I had it still for one more day for Tuesday, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I like the size of the Outback, you know, especially if you got a young family, um, you know, it's, it's a good size, you know, it's a midsize, it's a midsize wagon that happens yeah. to ride a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's roughly the same size. You know, when, when our kids were young, we had a VW Passat station wagon Yeah, and, you know, one of the cars that was in the running at the time, um, was, you know, that, that, uh, we took a look at that my wife test drove was the Outback, you know, and yeah. this was 20 years ago and, she was not a fan of the CVT at that time. And, and, and it was, so it's better now than it yeah. was, but yeah, oh, yeah. It, once upon a time, it was, it was not good. Right. And so, you know, we, we ultimately went with the, uh, with the Passat, mm-hmm. um, which probably ended up costing us way more, <laughs> uh, just in repairs over the years, but that's a whole other issue that I think I've discussed <laughs> at various points in the past, but yeah. it was a great car to drive, but, uh, you know, that size of car, you know, it, I think is really good. And the utility you get, you know, from that wagon form factor, you know, you've got the hatch, you know, when, when you need extra cargo space, you can put a shocking right. amount of stuff in the, in the back of the, right. the, uh, uh, the wagon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you'd, you'd be amazed how much stuff you can cram in there. And even with the seats up when you're using them, you know, to carry passengers, you still right. get a good amount of space back there, much more than you get, you know, in a sedan and, and frankly, you know, as much or more than you get in a typical, you know, crossover of, of similar footprint. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it, that's part of, that really is a lot of the appeal with this because it has, there's a lot of room be, and I don't have the number in front of me, but there's a lot of space behind those rear seats. It is a large cargo area. When you see it after having looked at so many vehicles, like we have Sam, you're kind of like, well, this is from the outside. You don't expect this. You expect it's going to be less, but there's a lot of room back there. So you can have a full load. You can have your family in there. And you can pack it full of a good amount of stuff if you're going camping or you've got luggage for like a you know a week's vacation. It is zero problem to fit that kind of equipment into the back of this vehicle. That's a huge part of its versatility. And I love that it does that 
without being huge. Like when when your kids are when you have a family and you need a little bit more cargo room, you need a little bit more a little bit more of everything, but you genuinely don't want a big SUV because they're more expensive, they're they're harder to park, their fuel economy is like there's a million reasons to get one, there's a million reasons not to. And if you want just like I need more room, but I don't want big SUV, something like the Outback is just absolutely perfectly proportioned to deliver that for a family that wants that extra extra bit but does not need truly an SUV. Yep. All right. Well, I had something just ever so slightly larger. Just uh, a tad. Just a tad, yes. <laughs> I had a uh, 2024 Ford F250 XL. Um, so this is kind of the baseline of the Super Duty lineup. Yeah, so the, the 250, excuse me, is is the, the entry level point to, you know, and then for, for Super Duties, you know, it runs all the way up to like F550s and F600s, you know, which are class five, class six medium duty vehicles that, you know, the, the 550s and 600s, you know, typically are built as chassis cabs and they get sent to an upfitter to put, you know, bucket, uh, bucket lifts on there for utilities and they'd get turned into ambulances and um, uh, uh, tow trucks and Actually, my neighbor across the street uh, just bought an F550 chassis cab that he's driving out to Colorado next month to get a flatbed and a camper put on it, turning it oh. into an transforming it into an overlanding rig. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, um, the 250 is is the entry point that, which does not mean that it lacks for capability. It still has, you know, it's obviously not as much as you can do with a 550 or 600, but it it has a lot of capability. Um, and it's really, this is the, the XL is the work truck. You know, you can also get these in, you know, Lariat and platinum trims, you know, the fancy pants. This ain't that this is, <laughs> this is not fancy. Um, so the, the one that I have is a crew cab with the six and three quarter foot beds. You can also get this with an eight foot bed. Um, and you know, it has the, the, just the plain black plastic grill, black, you know, flat, uh, black painted bumpers front and rear, um, you know, and, and then this one also, uh, I specifically requested this one, uh, because I wanted to try out the new 6.8 liter V8. Uh, so mm. we've had the, the Ford's had the 7.3 liter quote unquote Godzilla engine V8 for the last several years. And, uh, the 6.8 is basically a slightly downsized version of that still has a tremendous amount of power. I think it's like 370 horsepower or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I wanted to try it out, see how, see how that one feels. And that 6.8, at least for an F250, um, has plenty of power. There is yeah. no shortage of horsepower and torque in this thing. I mean, this, this thing will get up and go. Um, the, uh, the, the one that I had, also has the um, the um, four by the let's see the XL off road package. Um, does that make it all? Is that how much is that? Is the price on there? Or did uh, I on the spot? Yes, uh, let me find it here. It, the uh, the XL off road package is nine hundred ninety five bucks. Okay, so that gives it you know a bit of a lift. Uh, like it's a one or two inch lift, thirty three inch all terrain tires. You know, so you could actually do some some pretty. Some pretty decent off-roading with this thing. Uh, it's you know got a two two-speed transfer case. Uh, you know so you got four-wheel drive high, four-wheel drive low, uh, in addition to two-wheel drive. 
um, you know, aside, you know, the, the, the biggest downside for, for off-roading, you know, is just the length of it, you know, so your Huge. breakover angle is going to be somewhat limited. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the front front overhangs fairly short, um, and you can remove the, uh, the front air dam. There's this deep front air dam to help with aerodynamics. You can actually take that off. So you get a little better approach angle if you, if you wanted to, um, the, uh, do they the, make it something that's like easy to take off? You yeah, know? it's fair, it's fairly straightforward to take it off. It is pretty easy. So you could yeah. like take it off and then pop it back on. It wouldn't be something that you'd be yeah. struggling with for okay. Yeah, it's Curious. it's not not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um the uh the one that I have uh also has uh the lowest uh final drive ratio. So it's a four four point three oh to one final drive ratio. And I'll get to why that's important. I mean it's important for a couple <laughs> of things. One, if you're gonna be towing with this thing, then um it you know it's great great for that. Uh, you know, it helps boost, you know, multiply the amount of torque that you've got available. Downside of that, not great for fuel economy. <laughs> so tell us what kind of fuel economy you did get in this thing. Sarah. So I took it out for, you know, uh, for a run around my usual fuel economy loop uh, the other day and got 13 miles per gallon <laughs> in mixed highway, you know, urban, suburban. Hey, and. I- you know, it was double driving. digits. I feel like it I, I did break into chance, double digits, so that's it good. Could have been single digits, so we'll true. for thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if if you need better fuel economy and you don't necessarily need maximum towing capability, um, you know, then you can get you know like a three three um, uh, rear axle ratio. Uh, the four thirty uh, axle does come uh, with an electronic locking differential. Um, so, you know, if, when, for that, when you're doing your off-roading, you can press the button, lock that rear diff, get some extra traction in those conditions. So that is helpful. Um, I also had the, uh, uh, the greater than 10,000 pound GVWR package, which is only a hundred bucks, uh, which is mm-hmm. a, you know, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good bargain there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, driver assist package for 730 bucks, uh, one, <laughs> one, <laughs> uh, accessory that I was surprised to find on here. The twelve thousand pound Ford Performance Parts Warren Winch um, for thirty eight hundred and fifty five dollars. Um, so if you, you know, the the way I, you know, thinking about this truck, you know, this is a pretty plain Jane truck. You know, all hard plastics inside. It's fine. Vinyl seats, fine. Mm-hmm. Rubber floor mats. You know, so easy to clean out. This is a this truly is a work truck. Right. It's and, not the fancy truck. It's the get stuff done truck. Right. So this this is the kind of truck, you know, and with the the four by four off-road package, this is the kind of truck you're probably going to use on a farm. So this right. this is a, a farm truck, which is it's perfect for that. You mm-hmm. know, it it doesn't have any running boards or rock rails or anything like that. Um, you know, which given the lift that it has on it and the 33 inch tires means that, you know, you're probably, you know, unless you are about as, you know, as tall as Robbie, you're probably going to be <laughs> reaching up and grabbing that grab handle on the A-pillar to help boost yourself up into the truck, um, you know, because it's a pretty tall step up to get into the cab. Uh, but as with all other F-series, frankly, all full-size pickups with a crew cab, I mean, this thing is really roomy inside. The back yeah. seat is like a limo. Um, and uh, the front seat in this one, you know, it's got a column shift. The front seat is actually a bench. Um, mm-hmm. the, the center section of it folds down, so you have an armrest, and yep. there's a work table. So it's not like it's not quite like the uh, the work surface that you have in the F-150s, and that's available even in in the Super Duties. But it's uh, you know it's a, a a work surface that 
um, kind of slides forward a little bit and then swivels towards the driver. So you can have a laptop or a tablet on there or use it for your, for your lunch when you're you know, having lunch in the truck. Right. Um, and you know, if you do need to carry six people, you know, five, five passengers, you can just fold that whole thing up and, you know, you, you could have three across comfortably in one of these things. So mm-hmm. it is, it is roomy, you know, for, uh, for six people. Um, the, like I said, the 6.8, you know, it's got plenty of power. Um, the, uh, this one also had the, uh, the tailgate step, uh, option in there, which is very handy again, because it's so tall. If you need to get up into the tailgate, um, you, you know, drop the tailgate, pull that step out, you got a handle there so you can step up, but the, all the super duties also have, uh, now this year have, uh, a bumper step in the rear corners. And then the bedside step just ahead of the rear wheels. Mm-hmm. So if you need to to reach in to grab something out of the bed, you can just step up on one of these, and uh, you can you can get easier access to the bed because otherwise, if you're standing on the ground, again, unless you're very very tall, you're gonna have a hard time reaching anything in the bed. Yeah, it's really high. I've stood next to those, and I feel like a little yeah. widget. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, there's no chance I'm reaching in there. <laughs> um, and with the uh, with that winch, um, you also get. Uh, um, a couple of required options, which includes uh, a 410 amp dual alternator setup. So you get two alternators on the engine and also dual batteries. Uh, so you have enough power for that 12,000 pound winch, um, as well as it's also got uh, um, two kilowatt pro power on board. So there's a couple of 120 volt outlets in the bed. Uh, so you can plug in some tools and, and run those off there, charge, you know, charge your equipment, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what else, uh, we got here, uh, there's a, a bed liner, um, and a couple of skid plates that are part of, for the transfer case and the fuel tank that are part of that four by four off the XL off-road package. Um, so all in, uh, grand total for this $62,080. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot for an XL work truck, but yeah. You know, but it, you know, it's crazy, but it's not like you just look at the number, but then when you look at what you're getting and what you're going to be doing with it, yeah, actually not. You know, I mean, this this is you know, this is not something I would ever recommend to anybody to use as a as a just a daily driver. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I would strongly recommend against it. Um, you know, visibility out of it is you know is you know especially you know any of the full size trucks, especially the heavy duties. Um, you know, visibility directly in front of you is tends to be fairly limited when you're driving. So if there are, um, uh, you know, young kids or, you know, anybody shorter, you know, that might be in your vicinity, uh, it's not, you know, it's not great for that. Um, you know, and that is, that is a real issue. That's um, the big problem with any large trucks or large SUVs that the, the way the, because the hoods are so big and because the way they're designed, you really, I remember having a colleague who's maybe, I don't know, probably about my height, maybe a little taller walk, really close to, but in front of, and it was like, man, I could see like his forehead. Like, it's just, it's, it's anybody who's short or kids, especially it's going to be completely hidden. So if you do have kiddos around, you have to be super, super careful, pay attention or anything low. Cause you, you just can't see it when they're up close. Yeah. And, and this one fortunately did come with the 360 degree camera package. Mm-hmm. So you got a whole bunch of cameras all around and you can tap on the screen and get different views. Um, you know, so you can see what's directly in front of you, what's directly behind you. You can get the, 
especially for off-roading, you can get the views um, along the along the front fenders, you know, so you can see exactly where where your wheels are, uh, you know, if you're going down a trail, things like that. Uh, that is unfortunately that, that package eleven hundred and fifty dollars, uh, but you know, it's definitely something that you might want to consider for a truck like this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, baseline, you know, XL, you know, two-wheel drive XL. Uh, F two fifty starts at about forty five thousand dollars, which is not cheap, but you know it's it's you know a lot a more affordable. Less. Yeah, yeah, that's a chunk. But if you you know if you need something to do the work, you know, that's what Super Duties and you know the the Ram and and GM heavy duty trucks are for. It's they're they're work trucks. Yeah, they're, and, yeah, they're genuinely like if you just if you want a truck, but you just it's kind of like lifestyle ish. Or if you're just hauling stuff to the dump or occasionally bringing, you know, equipment or something around for fun, regular truck. If you actually are doing work, that's when you need things like the F-250. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you want to take a guess at the uh, delivery charge? You did so Got to be within I, the 200 I'm, bucks again. Oh, I'm never going to match you. I'm just going to say $12.95 just to, just to do it. $19.95. Dang it! <laughs> My other instinct was 14, so I still would have been off. <laughs> yeah, and, and this this one has um uh 3270 pound um payload capability. So, it's got some serious payload capability. You can haul a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean they're they're great. They're expensive, but they're absolutely perfect for doing what you need to get done. You know, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, there's a, there's a huge percentage of people that need to have something that's capable enough of getting the work done that actually can go out in a ranch or go out in the dirt and can, you know, haul stuff around in construction sites, that kind of stuff. And that's who these trucks are for. And they do the job beautifully. Oh, and there's an actual key, like a, you know, like a switchblade key that you actually have to insert and turn and like twist to start key? it. A like real a metal key. thing? Like the, an, oh an actual gosh. metal bladed you key. You poke into the door and it opens? Yep. Who knew? <laughs> well, you can, you, you can, you can unlock the doors by pressing the button on there, but to actually start the engine, you do have to uh, insert the key and twist it. Wow. Yeah. That's so old school. Like the number of cars that actually do that is so few anymore. I know. <laughs> but these, you know, these, a lot of these base level trucks still do that. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, did you know you can support Wheelbearings directly? Head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia and you can become a patron today. Your contributions will help fund the platforms and tools we use to bring the podcast to you. And exclusives and improvements are already on the way thanks to your generosity. So if you want to be part of an automotive podcast like no other, head to patreon.com slash wheelbearingsmedia. All right, um, let's move on. Uh, so uh, you've been to Paris, haven't you? I have. So, um, you know, parking in cities like Paris and, you know, a lot of other big cities, especially older cities, can be a real pain. Can be miserable. Let's yeah. To be honest. And and uh, it's about to get a lot more painful for anybody driving large or very heavy vehicles uh, in Paris uh, into central Paris uh, in the very near future. They recently had a referendum in there um, and uh, they passed uh, one of the things that they, they passed was to triple the parking rates uh, for heavy, bulky, and polluting cars, including many electric and plug-in hybrid models. Um, Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, Wait. So That's, I'm reading the details of this. I'm like, what? So if you have a uh, vehicle that weighs more than 3,500 pounds or 1,600 kilos, um, or uh, – and there's also some size limitations as well. Uh, you will need to pay more. You'll need to pay, um, let's see, uh, 18 it's- euros an hour in central Paris and 12 euros per hour in surrounding areas. So about th- I, 19 and $13. I love the exemptions. So if you live in Paris, you're exempt. Um, if you have a valid permit. Uh, also, taxi drivers, health workers, handicapped drivers, entrepreneurs – so you just, oh, you're fine. <laughs> you're, you're inventing stuff. Drive your big SUV. That's a weird one. <laughs> yeah. So, so Elon can park his cyber truck in, in right. Central he's Paris. He's an entrepreneur, right? So he's yeah. like, what counts? How do you prove that one? I just uh, imagine that, that is a strange one. Yeah. I'm imagining the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. Well, in France, there's probably going to be a lot of paperwork for, for that. No matter which one it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, so they, they estimate that roughly uh, 10% of the vehicles that park in Paris are going to be over the weight limit. And actually, the uh, the weight limit, if uh, if it's an electric vehicle, um, it does have a higher weight limit. It's 4,400 pounds because they are inherently more heavy. Or right. More heavy. They are inherently heavier, heavier than internal <laughs> combustion. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's still, it's still a relatively low uh, weight limit for EVs as well. This story on um, Autoblog lists some of the vehicles that will be considered overweight. The Model Y, the Volkswagen ID4. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's about about 4,500 pounds, 4,600 pounds. The BMW X5, the Mercedes GLC, um, and then big SUVs and big sedans like the S-Class. But I'm like, the ID4, that's just... It doesn't feel like a giant vehicle to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, to us, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. But by oh, European standards, you know, when you consider, you know, the smaller cars that many people in Europe drive, um, it is actually on the larger side. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you're right. In a European world. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I still, uh, that's like, gosh, and they already have, do they still do the things where they have days where they don't, like you can't drive in Paris because they have such pollution issues. There are all sorts of restrictions. I, about I think driving I think Paris. they do. And and one of the things that a lot of European cities are starting to do is 
um, implement um, eco zones uh, in in central urban areas. And for example, um, BMW and and some other manufacturers now on their plug-in hybrids, they uh, they have geofencing. So if, if if you put into the navigation, you know you're going into the central part of the city. Uh, what it will do is um, it will you know and and it knows you know the, the car knows what your state of charge is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're driving from outside the city into the central portion of the city into one of these E zones, then it will save your battery power till you get to the edge of that E zone and then automatically switch over to running on battery. Um, or, you know, if your battery power is low, uh, then it will, um, it will actually you know run the engine when you're outside of the zone to charge mm-hmm. up the battery. And this is right. something that the Jeep has in their four by E models as well. There's, there's that, um, uh, the the charging mode where right. it will run the engine uh, and charge the battery up while you're driving so that when you get to the perimeter of one of these zones, then it can switch over automatically. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, smart. Cars are getting so smart. <laughs> yeah. Maybe too smart, but maybe we'll, too smart. We'll some might say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of VW, you mentioned uh, the ID4. Yeah. Um, the uh, the ID four is also built in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at Volkswagen's plant there. Um, and uh, uh, in the last uh, sixty days, uh, more than half of the employees there have signed up to join the UAW. Mm. Um, this is in the wake of the, uh, the the huge contract that the UAW scored with the Detroit automakers uh, last fall. And uh, one of the reasons why uh, Union President Sean Fain fought so hard for those contracts is because they want to start going to the other non-unionized auto plants and get them unionized so that they're getting paid more as well. Yeah. And so they're starting off with, with Volkswagen, um, and they, uh, they've already got more than half of uh, um, workers there signed up to be represented. Uh, by the union and what uh, what uh, the union has said is, you know, they're going to target, you know, trying to get to 70 percent before they officially file for a union vote um, yeah. to uh, to to get the plant rec- organized uh, with the UAW and then start negotiating with Volkswagen for a contract. Did you go to the uh, economic club luncheon on uh, I did Thursday. Not. I was not able to attend. Did you attend that? I, I did. Um, and the, uh, the guest speaker, uh, this year was Pablo Desi, who's the president of Volkswagen group of America. Uh-huh. Um, Phil LeBeau from CNBC was moderating. He asked him about the, the union. Oh, um, what did he say? and, um, you know, Desi said, you know, we, you know, we talk to our employees, you know, we want to let them know we want to work with them. Um, but you know, we're, you know, Volkswagen as a company is also used to working with unions. Uh, you know, we're not opposed to them. Uh, you know, and in fact, in uh, in Germany, uh, one something that's part of the law in Germany is you know they uh, companies uh, with unions have what's known as a works council, um, and um, the uh, half of the seats on a company supervisory board, which is the equivalent of a board of directors here, are allocated to labor representation. Hmm. So can you imagine half half of the seats on the board of directors of General Motors or Ford or <laughs> no, Tesla? No, I cannot imagine. Being, I cannot imagine that at being all. Being <laughs> held by the UAW? Yeah, that would be a. Yeah. Oh my gosh, no. Um, I mean, so he said, you know, we'll 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 work with the union if it comes to that. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we want to do right by our employees. So, you know, he said the right things. You know, we'll we'll see what happens um, well, if it comes to, to that. You know, the thing is, it's like he's he's got to say the right things. He's got to say like, oh, well, we're ready to work with our employees and we want to keep them happy. And, you know, if they well, we're ready for whatever comes our way because we value our employees. But, you know, he can't even I'm not saying that that's not honest. <laughs> yeah. feels, But he also can't say crap <laughs> they're unionizing we don't want to deal with it. it's like you can't say that you know even if that's well, what you know they're thinking there's, there's only there's only one ceo in the industry that will say that out that loud elon musk yes <laughs> yeah elon that's it he's the only one who'll say that pretty but much yeah, there's no way that Volkswagen's gonna say it. and i'm not saying that that's what he was thinking behind the scenes but he he towed a party line very nicely there which is kind of what he has to do if they're especially if they're about on the cusp of of actually unionizing if they're at about 50 and they want to get to 75 they don't have a huge way to go so yep um did you uh did you happen to catch uh the ford earnings call last week um i did not catch the call myself but i heard some interesting things about it yeah so uh i guess on the call jim farley the ceo of ford um revealed that uh, about two years ago he set up a skunk works team at Ford to focus on uh, developing affordable EVs. And yeah, you know, we've, we've talked about EV affordability a lot here, you know, mm-hmm. and, or the absence of it. Um, certainly, you know, Tesla has talked about uh, introducing a $25,000 EV for better part of a decade. Um, right. And someday it might even happen. Um but uh, Ford has specifically said, you know, that they're they're focusing. Uh, they've got this team that is focused on how they can profitably build um, sub thirty thousand dollar EVs. And I mean, that's I, it's weird because I get it. Like the way the the entire industry, not just Ford, is going with EVs, has been a little bit like stutter start stop like they can't quite figure out the right mix you know they can't quite figure out how much we need to make what we need to make what people are looking for because it's not like we've had evs before and they have this grand history of how this whole process is going to work so it's a little bit of a shot in the dark i do think cost prohibits a lot of people from getting some of these evs you have these very very fancy very very expensive electric vehicles on some fronts and that's hard for a lot of people. You know, you're not, not everyone's, most people aren't looking for luxury cars. They're looking for affordable cars. And if you want to make it really, truly reachable for everybody, you've got to bring the prices down. So doing that is a great idea. But I do, I, I still can't help but wonder the the going concerns about EVs. That doesn't change that our infrastructure is lacking. And the, mm-hmm. depending on where you live, lacking more than others um, in terms of availability of chargers and uh, even availability of, of being able to charge at your own home and then just having them working. And I think until we fix that, or and I, and I don't even want to say it's broken, until everybody gets up to speed with that, until the companies that make chargers and everybody kind of gets into a system with this where they're, you can reliably, without having to think about it, go up, plug in and charge and walk away uh, or drive away, it's going to be hard even if you have a really affordable electric vehicle because people are still a little bit leery of being able to charge it reliably when they're out and about. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, um, you know, just yesterday or no day before on, on Friday, um, there was an announcement uh, or last summer, we got an announcement from seven automakers that they were forming a joint venture to build a DC fast charging network, 30,000 mm-hmm. chargers by the end of the decade. Um, and um, that includes uh, BMW, GM, 
Honda, uh, Hyundai, Kia, uh, Mercedes Benz, uh, trying to think who else, uh, but that, you know, that was announced in June or July of last year. They announced on Friday that that company has now received regulatory approval. Uh, it's going to be called Iona. Uh, Iona, like I-O-N-A, Iona? I-O-N-N-A, two N's. Oh, I-O-N-N-A, yeah. Iona. Um, and uh, they named their CEO um, as uh, Seth Cutler, uh, who uh, formerly uh, was in charge of uh, – technology at a company called EV Connect, okay. uh, which was recently purchased by Schneider Electric. EV Connect does a lot of back-end services for charging. So um, authentication, payment systems for char- EV charging networks. Um, and uh, so, you know, he's got experience in the, in the charging space. Um, and so Iona plans to have their first stations online before the end of this year. And like I said, 30,000 DC charging uh, DC chargers, um, online, uh, by the end of the decade. So, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're trying, they're clearly trying to compete with Tesla and the superchargers. They haven't said anything yet about support for, uh, NECS, uh, but presumably they will be including that as well, since all of the companies that are, uh, <laughs> actually partners in it will be building cars with yes. NECS connectors. <laughs> and I think that's almost like that, that kind of thing. Not that you can't, you can stop developing new cars. You're always developing and cars take a long time to go from an idea in your head to an actually drivable thing. But I think that that, if they could get, they could get the charging network in the United States up to snuff, a lot more people would be willing to look at an electric vehicle. I know people who would right now, people who'd be, and it's not even an affordability thing. It's just, I don't want one if I don't know that I can reliably pull off the highway, find some place to charge, plug in and charge at the, in the time frame that I expect to based on my car's parameters, you know, mm-hmm. if I either can't plug in because broken or it's charging ridiculously slow, that's not reliable. That's not acceptable. They would pay the money for a more expensive one if they knew that they could always charge it. So I think that's really super important to develop those networks. That's, I think that's more key than developing affordable vehicles, honestly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, especially as, as the EVs, you know, increasingly start filtering into the used car market, because mm-hmm. m- many of those people uh, that are in the used car uh, market live in situations where they will not be able to charge off street at home. You know, right. they either live in an apartment or townhouse or something, or they, you know, they may live in an older urban neighborhood where you are curbside. Um, and the, the irony of that is the areas where an EV is just ideal urban environments for driving you know you've mm-hmm. short distances you don't even need to drive tons of miles in a day but if you can't come home and charge because you're in an apartment or something that makes or then you've got to go someplace to charge like it's, it's all comes down to the charging thing again you know it'd be great to have that in more urban environments but that's where it's the hardest for people to sometimes find someplace to actually charge their vehicles right and that's that's where you know we really have to also have, in addition to the dc chargers we need a lot more focus on curbside AC charging or mm-hmm. AC charging, you know, in places where people are actually parking, um, you know, because that's way more cost effective, way more economical. And, yeah. you know, the vehicles are still sitting around long enough, you know, every day to be charged fully yeah. and, and be, you know, be fully charged every day. So right. that's, I think that's a, that's going to be a, a key factor that needs to be addressed this decade. I agree. I think you're right. All right. So last June, you and I went for a ride 
and a couple of cruise robo taxis in, yes, uh, in Austin. What an adventure. Uh, <laughs> how, how trusting are you of self-driving car technology? Um, you know, I don't necessarily think it's going to kill me, but I don't necessarily think it's going to get me there when I want to get there. I feel like it's just not... Our, our self-driving car was very cautious. Yes. It was overly cautious. It's like, oh my God, other cars are here. Let me stop. Like, wait, dude. <laughs> it's like, you know what it was like when you're in traffic and somebody in front of you won't make, won't pull the trigger and like drive into traffic. It's like, it's too congested. You have to edge your nose out there and you got to go into traffic. You, somebody, they'll stop. You just got to, you got to be a little bit, a little bit aggressive. <laughs> self-driving car is like, no. It just sits yeah. there. Like I'm never gonna get anywhere. I'm gonna, I'm gonna so, wait. You're gonna wait. So I felt like I felt like it would get me where I needed to go, but I didn't have faith it would get me there. Like it was normally a 10 minute drive, could be 20 in the self driving car that picks its own weird route and will will you know yield for everything. Yeah. That was not ideal. Or take or just generally take weird routes, weird which routes is through, you know, like, we also experienced. Yeah, it was like let's this lovely neighborhood. Why are we here? <laughs> well. Yeah. Forbes Legal did a survey of uh, 2,000 Americans uh, in early January, um, and uh, they found that of the respondents, uh, only 12% were very trusting of self-driving car technology. 22% were somewhat trusting. Uh, 25% were very untrusting. Another 21% were somewhat untrusting. And 20% were neither trusting or that they had no opinion. (laughs) Uh, So... And that's declining. The, the numbers are getting worse. I'm I'm not surprised. So like, gosh, it was before COVID. So it has to be at least five, six years ago. The New England Motor Press Association, New England Motor Press Association has a, um, used to do a thing at MIT where they do these um, awards and talk about tech. It was like a really neat day. And we'd always have someone from the MIT, I think it's called, is it called the Technology Lab? They have a lab that yeah. kind of works on this stuff. They had an expert from that lab, a guy with, you know, Huge brain comes and talks. Brian Reamer. I can't. It was a while. It was like six years ago. I can't remember. It may have been Brian. It was probably probably Brian. Yeah. He was fabulous because he told some great stories. It was really fun, and he made technical stuff very relatable, which I think is a hard thing to do. Um, And he's clearly very smart, and it could have been dry, and it wasn't. And one of the things he talked about back then, now let's say six years ago, right, five six years ago, where self driving technology in any car was even far less than it is today. Any driver assistance, put in air quotes, anything that let your car do the driving for you. And he showed, had this graph where it showed initially what people's um, acceptance of the idea of self-driving cars. And initially it was like, okay, say it starts in an average and kind of like going up, up, up. People are getting more accepting, more accepting. Then all these automakers introduce stuff and they don't work the way you think. None of it works the way you think. Something as simple as lane keep assist doesn't work the way you think. That's all a part of the self-driving thing. It has to be able to keep you in your lane to someday drive you. Once all those things started not living up to expectations, that number, it was just coming down, 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 down. The number of people willing to try a car, how much people trusted it. And this was like six plus years ago. And he had said at the time, he said, what the study kind of said was by looking at those numbers, what that tells you is by automakers introducing stuff too early, by not having, even if it worked it didn't work nicely. It didn't work in a way that was super intuitive and making it trustworthy for the consumer actually 
hurt them because people are like, nope, don't trust this stuff. Don't trust it. Don't trust it. So I'm not surprised to see this because this was six years ago where he was saying people are not trusting it because the little tiny features, not even full self-driving like a Blue Cruise or a Super Cruise or any of that, all those little self-driver assist features were not working well enough for people to trust it. So their overall trust of self-driving tech, forget it. It was just declining. So I'm not surprised that people are still like, yeah, so now we have more technical stuff and we trust it less. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, there was another question that they asked was in light of recent recalls, how confident are you in the safety and reliability of Tesla's self-driving technology? 62% said not confident at all or not yeah. very confident. Only 13% said very confident. Yeah. And so at least, you know, I think certainly in that case, I think that's probably a step in the right direction. You know, I, I have never been particularly confident in what they're doing. Um, so I feel like it's, it's all it's, you know, I, I am not anti self-driving technologies, anti-driver assistance technologies. They can be really helpful, but really when you drive them, even the ones that are really good, like I would say super cruise is probably my favorite. Um, I just find it the most intuitive and the most natural. It's the most human like in how it drives you at the moment. Um, but even that you still know it's not a human driving the car. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you're a passenger, you're not like you're nervous, but you still know this is not how a person would do this. It's not how a person would do this. That's hard to overcome. And the less like super cruise does it really well. I like how they do it. Blue cruise doesn't do it as well. Tesla doesn't even do it as, you know, everybody, but none of it is really, really solid. So I think it has to, it has to get to a point where it just, not only does it work, but it feels like a human driving the car when you're either the driver or the passenger. Like when passengers like, whoa, it's not just the driver who feels that it's a little off. Yeah. And, and you know, the industry, I think, you know, I, I, I have, um, you know, I, I believe that there's huge, enormous, you know, huge potential benefits mm -hmm. from this technology um, in terms of making it easier for people to get around, you know, making road safe, improving road safety. But we have to prove that it, that the technology that we're implementing is actually safe and reliable and have the industry has to build trust. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they take shortcuts, people will not trust it. And right. this is what happened with Cruz. Cruz took too many shortcuts and, you know, I can fully understand why people are losing trust in the technology when they see companies like Cruz, like Tesla, like Uber in, in the past, um, take shortcuts, then it, it, it reduces the potential for trust and and it's a lot easier to lose trust than to um than to to build trust you yes. know it's a lot you know it, it's a lot harder to build that trust if, and, if they had just held some of this stuff and not launched it as quickly as they did yeah. and i know there's so much money involved in this and it's a, you know there's a lot there's a lot happening with this but it's like okay guys but in the end you're you're shooting yourself in the foot like just hold until the tech is a little bit better. Even if it works well enough, make it work really well before mm -hmm. you hand it to people. And then people are more willing to trust you because it's hard to get their trust back once they give it to you. And then it doesn't meet your, their expectations. The, the next time you go, no, we fixed it. Mm, did you? <laughs> mm, did you really? There's That trust is gone. It's hard. And this isn't like, you know, some easy little fly-by-night thing. It's not just like, oh, it's not an easy, it's a life impact. You can get killed if this kind of technology doesn't work right. I'm not saying it's killing yeah. everybody. I don't want to be knocking it like that, but it is technology that can make or break you in an accident or driving. It needs to work or things go wrong and people get hurt. So that fear 
that fear is a lot, you know, and it's, it is somewhat, I feel like it's justified. Yeah, absolutely. So one of, one of the types of, you know, very limited self-driving capability that is in a lot of vehicles today is active park assist systems where, you know, you can press a button and the car will automatically parallel park itself or perpendicular park itself. How do you feel about these systems? Have you, have you played around with them at all? Okay. So I played around with them and I'm not a fan. And the reason I'm not a fan is kind of talking about that. We were talking about with the self-driving car stuff in general, it, it does a great job. Like I found that these work. I've never, I've never had one bonk into another car or sideswipe anyone. I did have one once very many years ago, get confused about seeing a motorcycle in a spot and wanted to back into the spot and there was a motorcycle in it, but that was like a one-off, but they're slow. Like, where you really want parallel parking to work, you're in a busy street, you're going to parallel park, you had best parallel park that car in two seconds flat, or the entire city is laying on the horn honking at you. When you have the self-driving car, it's like, it makes a brand new driver look speedy. It is so (laughs) slow. And for that, I sit there and I'm like, I'm working on it. It's like, oh my God, everybody here, everybody here is cursing at me. Everybody here is saying nasty things to me and the cars around me because I'm holding up the entire road. So it's too slow. It's too slow. What do you think? Do you think- I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, every time, you know, whenever I get a car that's got one of these systems in there, you know, I try to take it to a parking lot somewhere, you know, and I, I look for a spot where hopefully there's, there's no, you know, there's not going to be anybody waiting for me to, to try it out. And inevitably these things are so slow that even, even when I start off with nobody behind me, I end up with, you know, somebody behind me waiting while this thing is slowly <laughs> maneuvering its way into a parking space. And it's like, oh man, it's, it's just right? such a pain in the neck. Like, so forever. It's, it's, it's not and then good. I just don't bother. So Ford is apparently planning to um, delete their uh, active park assist system that they have in, in many of their vehicles, mo- probably most of their vehicles at this point, um, because the data that they're getting, uh, from you know from the connectivity systems in the vehicle you know one one of the advantages for an automaker of having um, connectivity in the vehicle is they can get information about what features customers are actually using versus mm-hmm. what they're not using how often they use it uh, you know and that can help in their product planning and product development uh, uh, going forward and what Ford has found is that basically nobody uses the active park assist. Uh, even though it's included in many of these cars. So they're going to eliminate it and save about $60 per car. There you go. And if you're putting the tech in there and no one wants it, why are you putting the tech in there? Exactly. So, yeah, I get that. I feel like people aren't going to, like like this headline on the drive, you guys weren't using it, so Ford isn't going to waste money on it anymore. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But you know what? There's something I actually really love about this because of all the, I feel this way sometimes about infotainment systems and all the stuff that they put into an infotainment system, right? There are 900 apps and features and this and that. How many do we all really use? You know what I mean? There's so much in there that almost makes it more complex than it needs to be. I love to see them say, you guys, you clearly you don't want this. Let's just get rid of it. <laughs> so yeah. it's not something there. I would love, I love the idea of doing that. Like, let's get rid of the stuff that one guy is using of the thousands of cars that you sell. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, that, that is, you know, one of the ways that they absolutely should be taking advantage of the data that they're getting from our vehicles is, is to make smarter decisions about what, 
um, what features to put in cars and, and what to get rid of. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so going back to the Chicago Auto Show. Yes. There was only one automaker that actually had a, a formal press conference this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Kia. Yeah. And they showed off a couple of refreshed versions of a couple of their vehicles. Yes. Um, the Carnival or the mm-hmm. Carnival. Carnival. And, and the K5, uh, their midsize sedan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what did you think of these updates? I mean, it was okay. First of all, it was so nice to have one reveal at the auto <laughs> show. It's like, woohoo! <laughs> they actually did something. I, I think they're good updates. I think, you know, they've, they've, they've taken cars. I already loved the, um, I can't even say carnival and they do say carnival, don't they? No, I uh, think they say carnival. Do they say carnival? Yeah. I think, I think it's people like us that, you know, say joke carnival. around and say carnival. Okay. And they, and they made, now you have a hybrid, so you have a choice, right? They still have the gas, right? It's a gas or mm-hmm. hybrid now with a carnival. Yeah. So you get the so, V6 or okay. the 1.6 liter they, uh, turbo hybrid. I couldn't remember if they were just like, forget it, no gas, but it is an either or. I think that's great. I think giving them that hybrid option, um, that's a big deal. Uh, I think that's nice and people will like that. And I've always, I, I like the carnival already. I thought it was a really solid minivan and <clears throat> multi, I'm sorry. Uh, multi-purpose vehicle. vehicle. Sorry, I had to look at it. I'm like MPV, multi-purpose vehicle <clears throat> minivan. Uh, I've already liked it. I always thought it, I already thought it was good. But I'm then I'm a fan of kids' vehicles, and I think they do a fantastic job of making vehicles for families, like the EV9. You know, things that are very family-friendly, family-friendly features, great style, great versatility. And I think this Jake just makes the Carnival even more appealing. And people who would have walked away from it because it doesn't have a hybrid, guess what? Now you do. Yeah, and now it's got uh, a front fascia that looks more like the, a lot of the latest Kias, mm-hmm. like the particularly the uh, uh, refreshed Telluride that came out last year, mm-hmm. uh, and and some of the other models. Um, I'll be really curious to try out the hybrid in this one. Yeah, um, yeah. I was a little surprised when I saw that they were putting the same hybrid in the Carnival that is in some of the uh, some of their other models like the Sportage and you know much considerably smaller vehicles uh, so it's the 1.6 liter turbo with a 6 speed automatic and a, and mm-hmm. a 54 kilowatt electric motor uh, for the hybrid so it's only 242 horsepower and 271 foot pounds of torque you think it's um, not going to have enough oomph for such a large vehicle maybe it it'll be interesting i i guess like I, I i don't know um I think it could be, it could be kind of a limiting factor for this mm, one. Okay. Do you think it would be enough though that someone who is looking for the improved fuel economy going with a hybrid would say, "Not enough oomph for me. I'm gonna bail and go with a gas engine." Maybe, um, yeah. but then again, you know the uh, the current generation Toyota Sienna has similar performance. You know, it's it's only available as a hybrid. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't they don't even right. offer. Uh, an internal combustion engine on uh, uh, just a pure internal combustion engine on the Sienna anymore. Mm-hmm. And it also, you know, it uses their 2.5 liter four cylinder hybrid system. And it's, it's in the same ballpark in terms of performance. And that one has their ECVT hybrid mm-hmm. system. Um, whereas this has, you know, traditional automatic transmission. So this might actually feel better than the, than the Toyota system. It so might. it, it, it might not be bad. It, it could be okay. We'll we'll have to see once we'll we get a chance out. to drive I'm it. Sure we'll, yeah, I'm sure we will all soon get a chance to give yeah. it a go. And what do you think about the updates to the uh, K5? I, 
I guess that's, I mean, yay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they gave it a new engine. It has a little bit more horsepower. Was it 11 more horsepower? Yeah. Um, added some little updated tech and some design updates. I'm not as, I mean, that's great. I think it'll, I think it'll be, you know, it's nice for this vehicle, but I don't think this is as big a deal for them as the carnival. I, I like, I like the, uh, the revised lighting, especially on the front end yeah. of, you know, the, that kind of lightning bolt uh, thing they it get going with the really driving lamps. It really looks like a lightning bolt on this one too. Yeah. Like very, very, very much looks like a lightning bolt. It makes me think of flash. Now I have that flash Gordon song <laughs> that open that flash. Ah, uh, do you remember that song from the uh -huh. movie? Yep. That's in my head now. Queen. Now it's in yours. You're welcome, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the uh, the GT um, gets um, uh, 19 inch wheels and those uh, bright green uh, brake calipers that were on they the one like that was on those the show brake stand. They put that on the yeah. They, that's a thing now with Kia. Yeah. I think that's fun. I love brake calipers that are different color. I think it can make the most boring cars suddenly like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Um, another thing that both of us saw for the first time at mm -hmm. the, at the Chicago auto show, it's first, oh. first time we've seen it in person and we've seen yes. photos of it for a yes, long time. We have. We've now had a chance to see, sit in, feel the uh, Tesla Cybertruck. Yes. What did you think? You hate it. Guys, if you could see his face, see, <laughs> if you could just see Sam's face right now, he's like, mm. um, I I know I'm in the minority and I know people hate the Cybertruck. I, I don't hate it. Would I buy it? Nope. Um, but there's a lot of things that I would or would not buy. I think it's really weird. I don't think it's a, a, a trucks truck. I, like it's not going to replace your F-150 Lightning, I guess. Um, it's not... I don't think it replaces. I think it's a truck for someone who like, like the Hummer EVs, you know, that giant things that are not really, you think of trucks as being trucky. These are not trucks for all the truck reasons. They're trucks for just, I want this big weird thing, I guess. And I feel like the cyber truck goes into, I want this big weird thing. And I, I, you know, it's, it has, I thought that little, the way the uh, cover, the which you have a note the here, that there was, yeah, the tonneau cover retracts. It is kind of neat. It sounds cool. It's like click, 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 click. It's very, very sturdy sounding, like it is sealing it in from a nuclear war. Um, I, and I thought it was, I thought the interior is that typical, very bland Tesla interior. They don't do minimal, minimal. minimalist. They didn't do minimalist interiors, and it's like that. Um, so no surprise there. Um, you know, I thought it looked a little different in person. It's, in that it seemed to me in pictures longer than it looked when I actually saw it in person. And I had never looked at the exact measurements, but it seemed shorter when I saw it. It's actually smaller than an F-150. It's about yeah. seven inches shorter than an F-150. And I think when I'd seen it in photos, it had always looked F-150 size to me. And then when I saw it in person, I thought, oh, no, it's not. It's actually, actually a little shorter than that. Well, the, um, the original one that they showed in 2019 was larger. Oh, was it? Maybe that's yeah, what I've, they, I've seen they too much it, of that one. They made it small during the development process. They decided to make it smaller. Mm -hmm. um, so it it shrunk by, I think, almost a foot in length yeah. compared and to the original see, one. Well, you can see it. You can really yeah. see it when you get up there. But so I, you know, it was, it was cool to see it in person. It was neat to actually see it and to touch the metal and, and see what it, just to see it. Um, I don't like it more or less than I did before. I think it was just, I think it's a very specific person who's going to want this. And if you just, 
it makes you happy. It's not like you're going to be doing trucky things in this necessarily. I think you're buying it for the fun and the novelty and it's not cheap. So you got to have some cash to burn and that's why you're buying this. And if that's why you're buying it, then buy it. I, I, yeah. And you hate it. You hate so, it with every fiber of your heart, your soul. Yeah. I mean, you know, aesthetics aside and, you know, everybody has the right to like or dislike whatever they want. I mean, there's, there's plenty of cars, you know, that I like the looks of others that I don't like the looks of. And the same is true for everybody. You mm -hmm. know, there, there's nothing, I don't, I don't think that there's any, any, probably any vehicle on the road that everybody loves. Um, you know, and setting aside the aesthetics, which I'm, I'm not a fan of, but that's, that's fine. You know, <laughs> I, I can, I can deal with that. I mean, if, if you like the way it looks, that's, that's fine. Uh, sure. You know, everybody has the right to their, their opinion on things like that. But what I do have an issue with is the way that they have built this thing, you know, so these stainless steel panels. So first of all, if you look at literally every other vehicle on the road, you open the doors, you open the hood, you know, you open, open various uh, uh, panels and you look at the edges of those metal components. What you will find is that, you know, when they stamp those things, they roll the edges over so they don't just slice these panels out of a sheet of steel or aluminum mm -hmm. um, and then just leave the sharp edges on there. They roll the edges over so you have a slightly rounded edge. And there's a reason for that. It's for safety, you know, because when you grab the edge of those, you don't want people getting <laughs> cut. Yes. Um, the On the Cybertruck, all of these stainless steel panels are stamped out of large sheets of stainless steel and they literally are just slicing them off and they're not doing any rolling of the edges. Where, where is it? Where are the, is I, cause I'm looking at your note where it says sharp door panels. Was that that you saw that or was someone complaining? No, no, no. Well, I mean, I've seen it in, in videos, but then when I actually went and, you know, opened yeah. the doors and I'm looking at them, if you look at the edges of the doors, you can see, you know, where, where it's been literally sliced by the stamping And uh, I'm press. wondering, I'm not arguing with you, but I'm wondering because I literally thought that. I'm like, because when I opened the door and I looked at it, I'm like, that is a just an edge. Like there's yeah. no roll to it. But I did, like an idiot, run my thumb down it and it wasn't actually sharp. But I'm wondering if it's like, would it really have depended where I had run my thumb down that door? I have Yeah, because it's this, not even. Because, yeah, because so I was, I was like at the front door, the one that happened to be out of show. And you can see like it's, as it comes down, it's rounded. What the corner would be is not like a point. It was like a rounded curve mm -hmm. down. But it is just, there's no roll to it. It's just like, it's just a, the edge of the metal. But it was smooth because I ran my hand over the over the curve and down a little bit. But I think, like you're saying, the problem is if that's not consistent, if I got the smooth spot, I'm fine. Maybe on the other side, and, I sliced my thumb open. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's, not, Tesla. it's not like a knife edge. But it's yeah. sharp enough that you will feel it. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, for example, you know, I was I was sitting in the truck with uh, Sebastian Blanco. Yeah. And I was in the passenger seat. And he was in the driver's seat. And when I went to get out, you know, as as I often do, you know, I grabbed the A-pillar, you know, to yeah. as I'm getting out. And that those those pieces along the edge of the door, around the aperture of the door, yeah. you know, it's the same thing there. You know, it's just no rolled edges, just sharp. And you can feel that. And it's very uncomfortable. Mm, but my, my, my bigger concern is actually with um, the front end of the vehicle, because if you look at the, the front edge of the fenders, the front edge of the, the, the trunk lid, the front lid, you know, 
all of those, it's the exact same thing. They're literally just sliced off. There's nothing rounded. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you were to hit a pedestrian with one of those things, uh, with, with a cyber truck, I mean, that would do way more damage than something that's got rounded, a little rounded more rounded edges. contours to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it's extremely dangerous. And I think that uh, I'm pretty sure that this vehicle will never, ever be sold in Europe because in Europe, unlike here in the U.S., they they have pedestrian protection standards, mm-hmm. and there is no way this thing would ever pass pedestrian mm-hmm. protection standards, um, because you know there's no give to any of this stuff. It's it's solid, and you've got those sharp edges, and it would cause really serious injuries if you hit struck a pedestrian or a cyclist with this truck. Uh, and you know there's also a picture I posted, you know, in reply on, on one of your posts on Threads. You know, that also showed the rear corner by mm-hmm. the uh, by I the tailgate, that. you know, where, you know, it the, the corner is actually rounded and it you know, it looks like they stamped it. And then, you know, somebody just took a, a wheel grinder and just kind of <laughs> ground it off. I mean, it's yep. just, it looks terrible. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's still these sharp edges and, and very uneven edges. Um, and I think it's 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 not good. And then, you know, the other thing is when you're inside. You know, you've got this steeply sloped windshield that goes way down. Mm-hmm. And with the world's most giant windshield wiper. Yeah, four foot long windshield wiper. <laughs> but you do not, you cannot see the hood at all. You have no visibility of where the edge of the vehicle is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you are, if you have one of these and you're planning to take it off road, I strongly recommend that you put some. Uh, flags on the corners so you know where the corners are yes absolutely. (laughs) because you you have zero visibility of anything beyond the edge of that glass because it just Mm -hmm. it's just one continuous line down and you you cannot see any of the hood at all and you have no idea where the corners are um so that's you know that's kind of problematic uh and then you know um one of the other things the um that tonneau cover which you know is a pretty you know, much more robust tonneau cover than the one that uh, that Rivian had on the R1T, the original yeah. one. Uh, you know, it's it's a, you know apparent and and it's a I think it's a generally a better design. But one issue with it is that unlike your your power windows, like you know, in your car, you know, in any any car built in the last 25, 30 years, if um, you know if you've got power windows, uh, and you go to put the windows up, you put your hand on that window, it'll stop. There's mm-hmm. there's a torque sensor in there uh, that'll you know as soon as you put all you gotta do is put your hand on it so it stops so it doesn't decapitate anybody or slice off fingers. Mm-hmm. That tunnel cover does not do that. Mm, you press you press that button if you try to stop it it will keep going. So that's that's not great from a safety perspective. So True. there's there's a lot you know there's a lot of issues you know that uh, like I said aesthetics aside just the way that they've constructed this thing that are not great from a safety perspective. Yeah. There's concerns. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, also whether you have a cyber truck or any other Tesla or a Jeep Wrangler, please, if you go out and buy an Apple vision pro, do not wear it while you're behind the driver's seat. <laughs> I mean, we've seen, we've seen videos of, oh of morons in, in Tesla's doing this over the past week and a half. But I was talking to my friend Will Matisse um, yeah. at the show the other day. I don't know if you know Will. Uh, I do. Yeah, um, and uh, he he lives uh, here in the Detroit area. He was at uh, Twelve Oaks Mall in Novi last week, and um, there's an Apple store there, 
and he was parking his car and he saw somebody drive by in a Jeep Wrangler wearing an Apple Vision Pro. Oh God, is that legal at all? If the cops see you, can they pull you over? I, feel I like would that hope so. Be legal. It's, oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, yes, the Vision Pro does have you know uh, pass through, you know, optical or it has uh, camera pass through. So you know the the, the cameras on the front of it mm, will show no. on the displays what's in front of you. But you know, if you look at any of the reviews. Yeah, it's the field. First of all, the field of view is much more restricted than what you have when your eyes are fully exposed. You have no no peripheral vision. Right. And also, you know, the resolution is not as good as as what you get, you know, when you're just looking with your eyes. So Mm -hmm. do not wear a Vision Pro or any other VR goggles. You know, the the Quest, the, the Meta Quest goggles also have, you know, that pass through that's not as good as what's on the Vision Pro. Um do not wear those while you're driving, please, please. It seems like such a, like, you know, and you know, the person like, I wonder if you can drive with this. I'm sure we all do, but don't do that. Like it's, I know you're really curious if it'll do it. You probably could, but should you, there's a lot you could do while you're driving. Yeah. Should you do it? Don't. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, one last Chicago related thing. Um, Chris and Julie Ramsey were there. Um, and uh, you saw them at the breakfast on Thursday morning. Yes, yeah, they're um, the breakfast. They, mm-hmm. um, they, this is a, a British couple that have done some adventures with EVs, uh, previously with Nissan Leafs. Like they drove a Nissan Leaf from London to Mongolia uh, a couple of years back. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, last year, they got a Nissan Aria uh, that they drove from the magnetic North Pole to the South Pole in Antarctica. Uh, and you know, they had the, the, pole to pole area was there on display, uh, complete with its 39 inch, uh, off-road tires. It looked absolutely crazy. It was fantastic. Those giant tires. It was like, it was crazy. What, What did you think of what they did? You know, I thought it was really neat and it was fun listening to them because they had a neat story and they have sorts of little bits and pieces to, you know, share about some of the interesting things that happened on their venture and what it was like driving in, you know, that driving that in anything, much less what they drove it in, you know what I mean? Is, is quite an adventure. So I thought it was neat. I thought it was an interesting adventure for them. I thought it was cool. I thought they had nice stories to share and they talked a lot about how uh, a large part of the entire venture for them were the personal bits. You meet some interesting people, um, have some interesting human experiences along the way. I thought it was a really great story. Yeah. And also, you know, to demonstrate that, you know, yes, you can drive an EV virtually anywhere on the planet. Um, and they, you know, one of the things they did, they worked with a company called NLX, um, which is uh, a, a European uh, energy company. You know, they're, they're involved in the charging space um, mm-hmm. to get chargers installed, public chargers installed uh, in South America along part of the route. Um, and uh, so I had a chance to sit down with, uh, with Julie and Chris and talk about what they did and how they did it and, and why they did it. Um, So I'm going to drop that interview in here and we will be right back. So we're here with uh, Julie and Chris Ramsey. um, And uh, the two of you uh, had an interesting adventure last year, the latest in a string of adventures. But in going back, like over the last dozen years, we've seen uh, it's been proven that you can do longer road trips in an EV. Tesla built out their supercharger network. Other companies have tried to do that with varying degrees of lack of success. Um, but 
The two of you went to something, you did something really extreme. You drove from the North Pole to the, or the North Magnetic Pole to the South Pole. Yeah. What on earth possessed you to do this in an EV? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think I'll pass over to Chris because he's the crazy one in our relationship. He's the one that, I don't know, sometimes I, I question you and ask you the same, <laughs> even though we're together. It's like, well, why? Why yeah. pull to pull? I mean, I guess it all started with the 24 kilowatt hour leaf. Uh-huh. Kind of like it's, it's turned a hobby into a passion, pretty much. Discovering the leaf um, over a decade ago and going on a journey with that car, putting on social media and people enjoying seeing a car put through yeah. the highs and the lows of an EV ownership at that time. And then I've kind of progressed to loads of crazy other adventures. And then Julie and I in 2017 drove the Mongo Rally, Mondum to Mongolia, basically in a Nissan Leaf again. And Pole to Pole for me was like, how can I do an adventure that shows people really the facts about what's capable, what the capabilities are of EVs? went through the, the extreme cold, extreme heat, and just trying to debunk all those myths. All those preconceptions and negative points that people have about EVs. And Poltfold kind of encapsulated all those into one expedition and said, yeah, you can drive long distance, you can drive in the cold, you can drive in extreme heat, you can use the climate control, you can use the heat steam, yeah. and all these things, and just put it into one expedition. I think Chris has always been into cars. I mean, since he was a young kid, he used to have posters of various types of cars on, on the wall, right? Yeah. And um, I think your, your passion of cars just switched to EVs when the technology came out. And it was a bit of a, I would say, a, a hobby turned passion turned into where we are today so yeah just going from smaller journeys into much bigger ones but something I want to add that I don't say very often is that I feel like if someone had a superpower your superpower would be driving long distances in an EV because not everybody has that ability shall well it really takes a lot of patience yeah and that's something that Chris has a lot of is patience and yeah, because it takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of um, preparation. And um, a lot of people would maybe not last or, or, or you know, give up very quickly. But you, I would say if you had a superpower, would, I think you found your, your superpower. And I'm that is endurance driving, EV driving. And um, I think that's... I guess it's worth noting that driving the from the Magnetic Pole to South Pole, the, to make the car possible, the modifications we did actually nearly enough half the range of the vehicle. If you have over a 300 mile range, the car has really realistically 150 miles an hour of range. We could get more out of it in hilly environments and you're getting the regen bracket, but about 150 miles. So yeah. the patience and the ability to do and the planning and execution is all based around the fact that we had half the range car. So you wouldn't have to do as much planning if you have a regular area or a regular EV because you have 300 plus miles of range. So we, there's, that, uh, there's that element to take into consideration as well. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at an area, this is clearly not an off-road SUV. This is not a Jeep Wrangler or, yeah. you know, or a Land Rover. And they're not built uh, yeah. to be. So, so how, how did you transform an ARIA, a, produ- a stock ARIA, into something that you could drive from, you know, almost the top of the one end of the world to the other so the main thing is the wheels and yeah. um, we'll see straight away there's huge 39 inch bf goodridge kill two tires on there 
and the wheels are predominantly for the polar regions. It's, and it's to enable you to traverse through the, the deep snow, thick snow conditions in polar regions. Um, so Arctic trucks, um, the polar experts when it comes to um, expeditions in those regions, and they also modify um, the cars too to make it suitable. Yep. Um, they did um, our car in Iceland and made it suitable, I guess. Yep. Um, other than the tyres, then we put a protection plate on the underside of the car to protect the battery from any bum scrapes. Um, which you add a few. Which yeah. we, yeah, it's got a few dents in there because the way I describe it is like when we were up in the Arctic region, um, it's off-roading, extreme off-roading. Mm-hmm. And you are... You're, you're literally you're hundreds of miles or thousands of miles from a, from an actual paved yeah. road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sometimes to, in order to get through some thick, deep snow, you need speed. And when sometimes when you apply a little too much speed, you take air. Mm-hmm. And when the air comes, you crash down. And if there's any like rocks there or um, part that, um, solid ice, then um, yeah, it can cause a lot of damage. So yeah. uh, so there's a few war wounds, isn't there, on there the is, uh, on the car. The, um, and the other thing is the tow hitches. Isn't yeah, it? and then you've got the the three receiver foot towage receiver plates on the front and and the back. And the idea behind those is, if you ever have a situation where you need to change a tire or you need to do any kind of maintenance work, we can then jack the car up at the either either side, you know, mm-hmm. left corner, right corner, or in the middle. Um, and then also when we got stuck in areas of really thick deep snow, um, where we got bogged down and we were too bombed out that we couldn't dig ourselves out then the support vehicle would connect us up and call us out. And likewise, they do the same for each other. Um, but it's worth mentioning that the, the drivetrain, the battery, the suspension system is all factory out. Um, the, the idea behind the projects that we do is to say, here's effectively a stock vehicle that you can buy from the showroom. This is really what it's capable of. This is showing you and demonstrating to you just what it can do. So, you know, given the complaints we hear from people in more populated areas about charging infrastructure how do you charge this thing in polar regions you know there's there's certainly no public charging infrastructure or, <laughs> yeah. you know, or even anything else yeah so there's obviously no charging stations up in the polar regions so we had to take a reliable source with us and that reliable source at the moment is a petrol generator and so yeah. we took a seven kilowatt petrol generator with us um to, to charge the car so it's like our mobile charging station but we didn't just stop there we wanted to innovate yeah. and try in other solutions cleaner solutions out of there to charge the car and we introduced a, a windmill a five kilowatt windmill up in the, in the arctic and a solar array down in antarctica and we kind of like built a prototype um hybrid charging system whereby when we charge the car and um, the fuel is being offset by the renewable energy being produced through the windmill and the solar panels so how, how well did those alternative solutions work out for you? So in Antarctica, they worked really well. Um, we had 20... That was mostly solar there? Yeah. yeah. So the idea behind it is the inverter that sits between the generator and the solar panel it just kind of says, I, I don't need as much power for you from the generator. I'll do, I'm taking good power from the solar. So it kind of meant we used about a third less mm-hmm. of fuel. In, our, in the Arctic, we had a slightly different scenario. When we... Um, the second windiest place on the planet, um, only second to Antarctica... When we got there, um, well, a couple of days before we got there, it was like really bad heavy winds. Mm-hmm. And the guys, the guys were telling us, construction stopped. You know, this is really bad. When we arrived, the sun came out. 
the wind went away and it didn't come back until we left. So it's like being in a dead calm on yeah. the sea. And, and that's why it comes back to that's why we had the generator. Mm-hmm. Because at the moment, the technology around generators hasn't advanced enough at this point in time to make a very reliable renewable energy generator, like a hydrogen or whatever it be. So that's why we had to stick with the with the generator, petrol generator. It's it's the only way. Yeah. So oh, the thing ahead. is, is this is our world's first and mm-hmm. um, this expedition. Yeah. No car in history, and I think combustion engine vehicles have been around for about 150 years. No car in history has ever done this, been this kind of journey before. So, yeah, I think we would not have been allowed, permitting wise, approvals wise, to go in without it, reliable charging support and. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, yeah. yeah, it was the only solution at the time, but we want to work and improve on those solutions to hopefully one day be, you know, completely renewable. But we're not at that stage yet. Yeah. Maybe yeah. step, step every, by step. Everything's a transition in every industry at the moment. So yeah. so did you did you carry all of this gear in the Aria or was, was it carried in the support truck that was following it? Combinations. So at times we pulled the windmill until we, we did eventually leave that behind because we had no winds. We thought there was no point in taking you with us. So we left it at one point. Um, so we kind of pulled it. Um, was it, was it were you towing that? Yeah. But, okay. Yeah. And then it was left behind. And then we went to the Mad Coal, came back, collected it, and took it back to the to the, to the village. Um, it, with the solar panels, they went in the back of the car. Yeah. And then at times we put them on the in with the support vehicle as well. So we kind of shared the load. Okay. Now, one of the things you talked about in your presentation this morning was, um, you know, part of the goal of this was to help expand charging infrastructure. Yeah, correct. Uh, talk a little bit about that. So what's really important for us is when we do these adventures, it's an adventure with a purpose, mm-hmm. you know, and um, our legacy is to, you know, work with the charging infrastructure companies and work with them to put chargers in the ground, permanent chargers in the ground, so other people who EV um, drive in the future can use those and get to where they want to go. Um, so we partnered up with NLX Way, who are amazing, amazing, fundamental to the success of Potable. And um, they've put numerous chargers for us where there was gaps in South America. Yep. So if we speak about Peru as an example, um, prior to the Potable project, there was what, how many? About three, three chargers. chargers in the whole country. And that was um, it. That were all set fast chargers or just uh, public chargers of just any in kind. In general, and it was okay. in public chargers in general. And they were they were centered in Lima, mm-hmm. the capital city. And that yeah. Was it. yeah. So when we partnered up with NLX Way and told them about our project, they loved it, and they actually used our project to encourage and speak with local businesses and install chargers in their premises, mm-hmm. and um, that's, that's what they did. So now, whoever traver- goes through Peru, north to south can do in an EV because there's one every 100, 150 miles approximately. And um, yeah, so for us, it's really important to leave that legacy behind forevermore and to continue building on that um, aspect because, um, yeah, it's it's uh, adventuring with a purpose, as I say. Yeah. So you've now driven an EV from London to Mongolia. You've driven, you've driven one all around the, the, Baltimore, the UK. Yeah. You've driven one from the North Pole to yeah. the South Pole, 22,000 miles yeah. over 10 months, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. What's next? Rest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and again, I guess it comes down to the purpose. What we're kind of doing just now is obviously we're here in the order show, which is really cool, um, getting people to be able to see Somisa. We 
Sonrisa, the name of the area, because Sonrisa is the Spanish name for smile. Okay. Um, and everybody who sees her smiles. Mm -hmm. um, it brings joy to a lot of people's faces, so we, we named her Sonrisa. So it's kind of like showing Sonrisa around and kind of letting people see her, get to hear our story. But we're looking at ways that about how we can take what we've learned from the expedition of how the kindness and generosity we got from people, how we can find ways to give back to people, give back to society, give back to the planet. Um, that's kind of our focus just now. And education as well. Yeah. Wherever we can get involved with education, children, different and communities, initiatives, you know, just, just using that platform to continue advocating for EVs and um, continue just showing to the public just how exciting, how reliable and how capable they are. Yeah. And, you know, we are, the purpose, I guess, I get for doing something like Pole to Pole is, is kind of proving, not just seeing it, Oh, the car can do protocol, but living and breathed it, if that makes sense. So we can say, or genuinely say... Yeah, I mean, you spent every single day for 10 months yeah. with yeah. this vehicle. With this vehicle. Yeah. So we know exactly how it performs, and we know exactly, like, where the, the pitfalls are, and we can genuinely say that that Aria performed amazingly. The build quality of it is amazing, and the EVs nowadays are capable you know um, and the other thing is we tell people be inspired by our story but you know we take things to the extreme pole to pole is the extreme not everybody's going to do pole to pole tomorrow but the fact that we could do pole to pole in a Nissan area that's probably half this range because of the modifications that we've put on yeah. with the wheels the rooftop tent um, extra height etc um, and you know harshest of environments in terms of extreme cold, extreme hot, all the different terrains that the car's been through. So if we can do that, then surely for me You could do people, something on a smaller scale yeah. locally. Exactly. Exactly. So um so I, I just uh hope people, you know, are inspired about it, inspired by it and um are maybe convinced that the EVs are capable. It's a way just for us to say say look, we we're just sharing this knowledge. We've demonstrated so we share the knowledge. Mm. What you choose to do with it is up to you guys. It's it's kind of saying that again, these guys have done it. So I can take that on board and think, okay, maybe my perception has changed because it, I'd see what they've done. Um, it's just use that knowledge in any way that you want. And hopefully it inspires you to go electric or inspires you to look at maybe starting, people start with hybrids or whatever. Whatever your journey to electrification is, um, hopefully this just inspires you to start that journey. And we respect it's not for everybody. Sure. You know, we respect that. And we also respect that it's not perfect, you know. But, you know, they've come a long way in the decade that they've been around. You know, if you think about 10 years ago with the original Leaf to some of the cars that we see on the show floor here today. Yeah, I mean, you were going, what, 60 miles on a yeah. charge in that first generation yeah. Leaf. Yeah. yeah. To, now, like, what, now four, yeah, five, yeah. 600 miles yeah, on a charge? Yeah, you know, and, and this, even with all the modifications on this, you can still go 150 miles. And, yeah. You know, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, I was, stock one, 300. I was, yeah, I was doing 1,600-mile road trips in a 65-mile yeah. 65 65 yeah. Leaf. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so you are very patient. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it doesn't charge very fast either. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of saying to people, but it's, we we say we understand things aren't perfect, and it's like charging infrastructure. You indicated. I mean, there are a great backbone of chargers here in the US and as well in Canada. There are some reliability issues that some of the charging companies need to get around. But it's like everything. When petrol first started, back in the birth of Ben's days, way back in them, you know, 
charging. There were no gas stations yeah. around in 1886. And then when they were putting gas stations in the ground, there was teething problems. There weren't big enough distances between each. So there's all these things, like with any technology, there's learning curves to overcome. And But I think it's happening a lot faster with EVs. But if you're fortunate enough to have um, your own drive with access to a plug socket um, at home, then, you know, 99% of your charging will be at yeah. home and you won't rely on the, the public infrastructure. The public infrastructure is designed for people doing long distances. But um, for the range that EVs provide you, give you today, that, you know, should cover most of people's daily needs, you know. So I feel like we're at a really exciting time here. Yeah. And um, we're at that. I remember 10 years ago, people said, oh, the cars don't have the range. There's always an excuse, mm-hmm. wasn't there? Um, they don't have the range. Now we're at the range. Oh, the, the infrastructure is not good. Um, I always feel there's always a, a reason, a barrier, a barrier yeah. to change or, you know, people resisting the change. There's always something. But, hey, in this decade, we can see how things move so fast. I'm really excited for the next decade and where that technology is going to bring us. Yeah, I think that probably, you know, aside from, you know, making sure the charging infrastructure works, the next big barrier is just affordability getting more affordable EVs. When that comes to supply and demand, the more people buy, the cost will come down. Any new technology that's on the market is going to be expensive. So it's a catch-22, isn't it? It's getting uh, more people to buy and that cost will come down. But yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's still a big issue, isn't it, the cost? Well, thank you both so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to meet you both. Yeah, thank you so much. Congratulations on accomplishing this uh, amazing feat. Thank you. All right. And we're back. Um, I also had a chance this week to chat with Chris Fuel, who we've talked with before. She is the CEO of the Chrysler brand at Stellantis. Um, and uh, the reason we talked this time is um, Chrysler is dropping a new concept car this week called the Halcyon. Um, you've seen the Halcyon. What did you I think? Was, I mean, I think as concept cars go, it's really an interesting exercise in many things in design and technology and all these things. But I think for, you know, the thing with concept cars is I always wonder how much of the concept will become car in any reasonable period of time. Um, and sometimes you look at a concept car and you think I can, I can eyeball that and go 75% of that could easily be in my car tomorrow. Like it looks like it could be reworked to be in the car. 25% of that sucker is not happening anytime <laughs> soon, you know, and there's things I'm, I'm guessing it's probably more like, you know, at least 50 50 maybe 25 percent will get into your your car and i felt 75 percent right and i felt like this one this although it it was beautiful and interesting i felt like it was even more so like when could all this happen (laughs) but i did what did you think sam i mean i i think it's you know it's a great design um yeah it's it's funny you know a couple of years ago uh chrysler unveiled the airflow concept so this Mm -hmm. electric crossover concept um and then you know, they indicated at the time that that was going to be their first EV coming in 2025 um, for the for the Chrysler brand, and they were also going to be introducing a bunch of new nameplates for Chrysler, mm-hmm. um, like four to six. Uh, and then last summer, fall, Ralph Gilles, who's head of design for Stellantis, um, indicated you know indicated that yeah they they they've kind of shifted the design direction for the Chrysler brand. Uh, and you know, what we saw in the airflow is, you know, that's not quite what the production models are going to look like uh, or other future ones, you know, and, and so what we're seeing here with the Halcyon is the first, 
indication of the design language that they're adopting for the Chrysler brand going mm-hmm. forward. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, more, more sharp edges, you know, the, the Halcyon, you know, has got, there's some, some elements like, you know, from, for example, what we saw in the, you know, first of all, it's a sedan, a fastback sedan, uh, you know, some elements of what we saw in the, the Charger Daytona, uh, mm-hmm. which is coming, you know, the first Dodge EV with that sort of front wing blade thing, you know, and then the opening underneath that flows up over the, the windshield. Um, and then, you know, but then there's some Porsche Taycan in the sides, you know, I think, I mean, I think it's a fantastic design. Um, you know, how much of this we'll see making it to the production electric Chryslers in the next few years will uh, is a big question mark. Um, <laughs> I was like, how much do you see that percentage thing we were talking yeah. about earlier? And, how much know, of the, a percentage? The, the logo that we first saw in the Airflow is something that will be on the new Chryslers. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, features prominently on, on this concept as well. Uh, you know, this thing's got, you know, suicide doors and, um, upward folding hatches, you know, so getting in and out should be very easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, you won't see that on production models. That's, that's one of those things that they put on show cars, you know, so that you can get a great view of the interior. Designers love those because you can show an unobstructed view of the interior. And they also look super impressive. They look yeah. very like uh, space agey and futuristic, like, wow, but they never, that's the sad part for me. I'm like, I want some of this to actually make it to yeah. a consumer vehicle and they don't. But, you know, uh, Chris did tell me that there will be um, sedans in, in the Chrysler brand's future. So it's not going to be just crossovers going forward. <laughs> so, so we will have cars um, and, you know, something shaped roughly like this should be part of the, the lineup in the next couple of years. I think that'd be nice. I, I you know, if we, everyone talks about Stellantis with them pulling out of the auto show and with various things that have happened that like, what's going on over there? Like, what are those people doing over there? What's happening? Are you guys okay? Like everyone's a little concerned. So I'd like to see Chrysler have, more than just the Pacifica, which yeah. is a great minivan, but it's like it's like the three hundred. Is the three hundred officially gone? It's yet? out of production, but okay. um, over the course of the last several months, they built uh, built up a bunch of inventory, um, okay. so that they would still have three hundreds to sell through, probably you know at least into the middle of this year, maybe into the fall. So if you want a three hundred, I mean you can't get like the you know the final edition three hundred Cs; those are all sold out. But there are there are 300s that are available at Chrysler dealers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll be able to get those for at least, at least the next six months or so they'll, they'll be, uh, they'll still be some inventory around. So you, if that's, if that's something that's of interest, yeah. And I, my guess is the same is also true for the charger and challenger. And, you know, you right, obviously can't get be... stuff like the demon 170, right. but there's probably some chargers and challengers on, you know, that'll be on dealer lots for, uh, quite a few more months. Did you see talking about Stellantis that the the supply of gladiators is apparently quite large? I keep getting advertisements for gladiators yeah. at fifteen percent below MSRP. Oof. Yeah. Not like my local my local Jeep dealer, just like Jeep yeah. in general. I'm like, wowza, you guys have a lot of those, don't you? <laughs> yeah, gladiator sales have not been uh have not been great. Uh, they haven't been jumping off the lots. No, um, so if you want a gladiator, now's your moment, people. <laughs> yeah. So um I'm gonna drop the conversation I had with Chris Fuel in here, and we'll be right back. 
I watched the uh, or most most of the uh, the backgrounder last week. I was actually in transit while it was going on, <clears throat> and uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so I had a chance to uh, see the the new Halcyon concept, which is uh, a fascinating design. Uh, it's a you know uh, hopefully we'll see some of those design ideas uh, come to fruition in Chrysler Chrysler brand vehicles in the not too distant future. But I wanted to to talk with you today a little bit about kind of how the brand is, how you're moving forward on the transformation of the brand. We've talked a couple of times over the last couple of years since you um, t- took charge of the, the Chrysler brand. And, um, you know, I think the first time we talked uh, when the Airflow was uh, publicly revealed, uh, the Airflow concept, um, we talked at that time about expanding the brand out to four to six nameplates, um, you know, going all electric with the Chrysler brand. You know, right now you're down to one, one nameplate, the Pacifica, uh, or I guess technically two. Does, do they still offer the Voyager version of it? I, I can't remember. But um, at any rate, you know, you've got one vehicle. So how, how is the overall strategy for Chry- the Chrysler brand progressing? Right. Well, the, the the strategy is progressing on target. We knew that we were going to have this 12 to 18 month period where we have Pacifica ICE, Pacifica plug-in hybrid, and the Voyager, which is just sold through the fleet channel. Um, we also have a pretty healthy inventory of 300s, um, which, as you know, we stopped production of at the end of last calendar year. And it's such a popular and enthusiast-oriented vehicle, we wanted to make sure that there was plenty of inventory to carry us through the year. So, you know, dealers do have the Pacifica and the 300 in stock today, and we continue to build the Voyager for U.S. fleet. And it's also rebranded as the Grand Caravan in Canada. Okay. So um, how <clears throat> how long do you expect... Uh, new 300s will still be available at dealers and across North America. Well, they're they're selling down the inventory. So for those who really want a Chrysler 300, I wouldn't wait too long. I think that we'll see that inventory get sold down by the the middle of the year or third quarter of this year. Okay. So looking forward, you know, to the the next stage um, of the Chrysler brand. Uh, you're going to start introducing some battery electric vehicles. Um, and, well, I guess first, let me step back. Is the plan still to go exclusively battery electric with the Chrysler brand over the next several years? That, that is our strategy and our plan. As we introduce brand new products under the Chrysler brand, they will be offered as exclusive battery electric propulsion systems. Okay. Starting with the crossover that I've spoken about that will be launched in 2025. So uh, I know there's been some speculation around at least some of the vehicles off the Stella Large platform um, potentially being that the well, the certainly it, it's been said by Chrysler or by Stellantis that the Stella Large platform 
will support both some internal combustion and battery electric. Um, sounds like there's no plan, at least within the Chrysler lineup, to have any internal combustion going forward on new models? Not, not for new models, but to your point, the Stellar Large platform is a multi-energy platform and offers internal combustion, plug-in hybrid, and full battery electric. And what's nice about that is as market and customer dynamic shift or change, it gives us options. Um, but but at this point, our product strategy is to migrate the brand to full battery electric. Okay. And as I said, when, when we first spoke, um, you talked about four to six models in the lineup. Is that still the, the plan? And, um, you know, kind of without obviously you can't get into specifics but um you know can you give us an idea of kind of the breadth of what the model lineup might look like in the coming years yeah i i I can't speak to the specific number of new products that we will be coming out with in that time frame but i i will say that the the new model entries will cover product segments that are growth segments, segments that we haven't played in um, either ever or in a very long time. And obviously the large crossover vehicle is, is one segment that Chrysler has not had an entry in. So that's brand new white space for us. What you see in the form of the Halcyon concept is our nod to the car segment. Um, I've, I'm, I'm a believer in the car segment. I think that there are customers out there who love their cars. They love the way they drive and handle on road. And um, that, that the car platform that the Halcyon is conceived on delivers not only fantastic driving dynamics, but also fantastic range because you don't have all of the uh, equipment and components that you would find in uh, a crossover or a full SUV. And because of the fact that, you know, we're, we're the company and the brand that created the minivan segment, our intention is to completely disrupt that segment once again and redefine it. Okay. I'm looking forward to see what, what Chrysler can come up with in that segment. Kind of looking more broadly, you know, as a brand, you know, Chrysler um, over the last decade or so, you know, you've had the Pacifica 300. What, what do you see the, what does the Chrysler brand represent within the Stellantis lineup and, and within the larger automotive landscape? What, you know, what's the theme for the brand right. differentiates it? So, so the theme or ethos of the brand is harmony and motion. And, and what I love about that ethos is that it represents not only clean technology and doing right by the planet, but also doing right by our customers, giving them mobility and technology options that make their life easier, not more complicated. And that extends to the product the technology that is integrated through Stella Brain Smart Cockpit and Auto Drive so that it's advanced technology for real life, not just for technology's sake. And also extending that to the purchase and ownership experience. 
we have been piloting digital sales processes in certain markets around the country. And we're doing this in partnership with our dealers, not independently of our dealers. Customers have told us that they want flexibility um, over how they research and purchase a vehicle. They want a process that saves them time. And what we are finding is giving them the option of configuring a vehicle online, um, executing a, a trade valuation entirely online, applying for credit and financing alternatives online, um, executing the purchase and scheduling delivery um, saves them hours <laughs> compared to the traditional process but we think it's important that we keep the dealer tied to that process, number one, because they have the inventory. Number two, in many cases, there's a wet signature or a finalization of contracts that are required that the dealer absolutely has to perform. And sometimes it has to be done in person. And they're also the best one to execute the test drive as well as the vehicle delivery process on the customer's terms. They may want it done at their home or at their place of work. And so we offer that flexibility. What we're seeing from the customers who have purchased through that process is a near perfect sales satisfaction score compared to the traditional process. So we think that um, this is definitely something that we want to expand and scale. As you transition to an electric lineup, you know, there's um, certainly a lot of challenges both you know, for Stellantis, for Chrysler, uh, also for the dealers in terms of the investment they have to make in um, new tooling, new tools, new training for their employees, but also for the customers and for educating the customers <clears throat> and making sure that the, the customers are getting into the right kind of vehicle to, as you mentioned, you know, get, guaranteeing customer satisfaction, making sure that you pair up the customer with the, the vehicle that's going to fit their needs and their lifestyle. What sorts of things are you looking at to, um, to improve on that and, you know, to either, you know, whether it's making sure that the, the dealer personnel are trained to help guide the customers in the right direction um, or extended test drive programs, you know, uh, helping with uh, installing charging at home. Uh, you know, what, what types of things are you looking at there? Yeah, the, those are all really good questions, Sam. And there are a, a couple of ways to go after um, overcoming objections and, and helping the customers to choose the vehicle that's right for them. And, and their needs. Because of the fact that so many of our dealerships have all brands under one roof, um, we have to have consistency for the way in which we help our dealers upgrade their infrastructure with the, the charging technology that's appropriate for their market, as well as the, the, the tools and the technical training and ensuring that they have a certain number of technicians fully certified to service and repair 
um, the battery electric vehicles. And the same holds true for the plug-in hybrid vehicles. They're they're both high-voltage battery systems. Um, and, and the same holds true on the sales side. We, we are seeing that for those salespeople that have completed all of the training and certification for plug-in hybrid and battery electric vehicles, their sales satisfaction scores are significantly higher than those who haven't fully completed the training. So we're, we're being very diligent and persistent with ensuring that every dealer, dealer has a minimum number and a targeted number of certified sales representatives as well as technicians and service advisors so that we are performing the right customer handling process and qualifying the customers in the right way to ensure that we're aligning a vehicle that best meets their needs. So that's one way that we're handling it in the retail environment. The other thing that we are doing at the brand level is updating our digital and and website material with a series of, of, of questions to help the customer to qualify their needs to determine what kind of vehicle is going to best meet their needs. In some case, it might not be a battery electric vehicle. It might be a plug-in hybrid, for example. Um, the, the other thing we want to help them to do is connect the dots between where they live and where they're purchasing the vehicle and what tax incentives might be available to them to offset some of the costs associated with purchasing the vehicle. There are certainly federal incentives available, but many customers may not be aware that there are local incentives available as well. And, and we want to help them through that process. Um, and, and then the education piece that you mentioned is, is something that's ongoing. <laughs> we, we can't just um, put educational content out to the customers and then drop it. It's it's something that we we are maintaining a consistency of, and we've created a series of educational modules that we post on TikTok and Instagram that sort of myth bust uh, some of the ideas that people think about um, a plug-in hybrid. This is centered around the Pacifica plug-in hybrid because there are some people who think that it's a full battery electric vehicle when in fact it's paired with an internal combustion engine, which is really the best of both worlds for people who are looking to dip their toe into the electrification pond. And yeah, certainly on the, the Bev side, you know, I'm in, in Chicago right now for the auto shows. We're talking, uh, you know, recently when we had a cold snap, uh, there were a lot of national news reports about people getting stuck and stranded, trying to get charging. Um, and, you know, I think as you go to an EV, one of the things you need to do is perhaps change your mindset a little bit about the way you use the vehicle away from the traditional mindset of with with an internal combustion vehicle, you can just pop into a gas station, fill it up in five minutes and, and be on your way again. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis being put on installing more DC fast charging, but that's not always necessarily the best or most economical solution. Um, and if people don't know the, you know, the best ways to use, to utilize an EV, uh, you know, plug it in at night, you know, keep it charged up. Don't, 
don't let the battery run down, especially in, you know, in those kinds of conditions. Is that part of the strategy that you're working on to, to make sure your consumer yeah. are informed? Yeah, that's part of the education process. And, and certainly for people who own battery electric vehicles, it, it tends to require um, more upfront planning for charging than what you might have to deal with uh, with an ICE vehicle. But the fact of the matter is nearly 90% of consumers who own battery electric vehicles exclusively charge at home. And so to your point, making sure that you are charging your vehicle overnight or during the day when you're not driving it is the best way to ensure that you have a full state of charge and you're ready to go. Okay. Uh, let's, let's jump back to, to product now um, and particularly around the, the Halcyon concept. Uh, you know, it, it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, that this concept is effectively a sedan form factor as um, you know, a lot of the industry has moved away from traditional car shapes, car form factors. You know, sixty to seven, somewhere between sixty and seventy percent of the the U.S. market now is some form of crossover or SUV. Why, why go with a sedan? And I think you mentioned earlier that you still see sedans or cars as a, an important part of the future lineup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's completely my my belief i think people will become <laughs> bored with some of the crossover utility vehicle designs that are out there because they are all looking the same and and there are people who want an alternative that offers the a, a beautiful exterior and interior design coupled with the versatility of configuring the interior to carry the things that they need, whether it be additional people, pets, luggage, bikes, and things like that. And the Halcyon concept has a very unique interior design that allows for a lot of versatility and configurability to use that space in a a variety of ways. as, as you noticed, that the design language of that car is just absolutely stunning. And it fully represents the future design theme that we will be carrying across every brand new Chrysler that we launch starting in 2025 and beyond. Okay. Yeah, I know, uh, I think a couple of months ago, or a few months ago, uh, Ralph Gilles talked about, you know, the the airflow concept, you know, it was originally sort of intended to be, I think, the, the first of these electric Chryslers. That's going to change significantly. So it sounds like we're going to see more of, of what we see in that Halcyon uh, coming to whatever this product is next year and, and what that's follows. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I think the, the airflow was a, a good first step for us to showcase what Chrysler could look like in the future. And as Ralph and I continue to collaborate and talk about how do we bring harmony and motion to life for Chrysler and how do we really push the boundaries of contemporary and modern and sustainable design, we we knew that we could get a little edgier with the vehicle because if people felt comfortable with the airflow 
when we first introduced it in 2022, we thought, you know, we, we, we're not going far enough with this design. It's too conservative. Okay. Uh, one of, uh, I'm curious about, you know, more with across the, that overall harmony and motion theme and how, where Chrysler fits into this ecosystem, uh, is, you know, I mean, Stellantis has a number of North American brands. You've got Ram is pretty obvious, you know, focus on trucks, Jeep, SUVs, off-road, rugged, um, Dodge, you know, the, the performance muscle. And there's Alfa Romeo, you know, doing their sort of Italian performance thing. Mm-hmm. Where, where does the Chrysler brand fit in? Is it, do you intend it to be a more mainstream brand, uh, more premium luxury, maybe kind of jumping, you know, kind of spreading across that spectrum? Where, where, what's, what is it? Look, give me a little more idea of what the brand looks like three, four or five years from now. Well, t- today the Chrysler brand is pretty squarely positioned in the upper mainstream segment um, from a content and, and a price point standpoint. And we intend our future products to be positioned in that similar space. And if, if we reflect on what I was talking about regarding what harmony and motion represents in the form of sustainability and seamless connected mobility and the, the ease and frictionless approach to how customers can purchase a vehicle as well as the ownership experience, on, on, the, on the product level compared to the other brands in the portfolio, Chrysler is really going to be the, the, the range leader and also a leader in intuitive connected technology. We'll, we'll let Dodge own the performance space. We'll let Jeep own the off-road space. And you will not see a pickup truck in the Chrysler port. That's, that's good to hear. Because you know, I think if, if you're going to have multiple brands, you know, having some distinction between those brands makes sense. I mean, you know, what- It's so important. Yeah. We'll, we'll be more about on-road efficiency and, and being fun to drive. Okay. Um, let's see. Is, um, is there anything else um, that cr- people should be thinking about with the Chrysler brand uh, as we move forward in, you know, into 2025 and beyond? Uh, what, what, can, what can people be uh, looking forward to uh, to expect from, from this brand? Well, I, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the brand has actually been growing <laughs> since I joined Stellantis in 2021. We were up 19% year over year in, in 2023, and 22% of that growth came from Pacifica, and Pacifica plug-in hybrid was up 60%. And and so we have been on a very positive trajectory for growing our sales as well as our, our profitability. And yes, we're, we're down to, to three nameplates, but the new nameplates that we're adding are, are going to really represent the future direction of Chrysler centered around harmony and motion. But we also don't want to forget the fact that we, we've got this incredible minivan in our portfolio, the, the Pacifica, and we are continuing to invest in that product 
as well as the brand new battery electric products that we'll be launching between now and the end of the decade. So you can see a, a refresh plan for Pacifica coming relatively soon. I can't say exactly when, um, but it will also take on some of the design enhancements that you, you see in terms of cues from the, the Halcyon and the future products. Okay. One, one last question. Um, the logo uh, and, you know, the one that appears on your background right now as we're talking it's on some teaser images, is that the, the new uh, future interpretation of the, the winged Chrysler logo that we've had for a long time? Is that what's going to appear on the yeah. next generation of Chrysler vehicles? It, it, it is. We we introduced this logo when we um, revealed the airflow a, a couple of years ago and continue to show it with other future concepts like last year's synthesis reveal. And you'll see it in conjunction with the Halcyon reveal next week also. And the, the brand new products will also incorporate that logo um, throughout. Any last thoughts you want to share? No, we're just really excited about the, the future of Chrysler. As I said, we've been achieving year-over-year year growth with our current products and the, the growth trajectory once we start introducing the cadence of brand-new products starting in 2025 looks very positive and very bright for the brand. Um, based on the Halcyon, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the team can come up with. So. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Always great to talk to you. Thanks, Sam. Right. Good to talk to you as well. All right. Well, let's finish up with uh, some listener emails. Um, we actually got some this week. Uh, so first up is Neil. Uh, I currently have a 2021 Hyundai Sonata Limited, and I'm thinking of replacing it. I'm looking for a car with as many safety features as possible. Mm. The current car has both a heads-up display and turn signal camera, or might be the blind spot camera. Um, but I have uh, I've not been able to find a car with both of these features. Can you recommend a car with both of these features? We would, re we would prefer a sedan, but a similarly sized SUV might be acceptable. Um, it, does Hyundai Kia offers those, and does Honda still offer it? Uh, Honda does not. Or do they get rid of it? They, I think they got, it's just they Hyundai Kia. So yeah, basically, Hyundai you know, the, the 2024, 2025 Sonata um, and the Kia K5, um, are basically it in terms that's of sedans. It. There you go. There's two yeah. cars. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it's, it's those the are the only ones that offer both of those features. It's not the head-up display that gets you. It's that turn signal camera. That's yeah. the thing that that's the and that is, that is a nice there. feature when you when you tap the turn signal stock, uh, you know it'll show the view from the the blind spot camera in the instrument cluster. You know on one side or the other. Right. Um, you know, so you can, you can see right there, you know, if there's anybody in your blind spot before you change lanes. Honda had it for, didn't they have a funky they, name they for it? They had a, they had a system called lane watch, lane watch, that's um, what it was. which it display and our civic has that. And it was yeah. only on the passenger side and it displays in the, the center touchscreen, not I in the like instrument cluster. I don't like that as much. No, it's not really very useful. Because there. it, because it, when it, because it gives you, you know, anytime you hit that turn signal, it would give you that display. It's like, that's great if you're just in heavy traffic and you're changing lanes. But if you're in a city or, you know, places where you need to see what's on your screen for navigation or whatever, and suddenly you're just looking at traffic cones blazing by on the right-hand side of you, are like, crud, I need those directions. I'm not as much of a fan of that version, and, but I like it in the instrument cluster like Hyundai Kia yeah. does. It is pretty good. And, and not having it for the driver's side is also, you know, a, a very limiting factor, you know, if right. you if you wanted to switch to the left or, you know, if you're, 
you know, if you wanted to, you know, have a glance, um, you know, before you open your door, you know, look for any cars or cyclists coming along, right? You know, right. just tap that turn signal and you see that display right there. Mm -hmm. It's very useful, but again, not, not available on the Hondas. So basically Hyundai, Kia and Genesis, you know, Genesis has it as well. Um, so like G70, oh, right. yes. uh, G80, um, you know, as well as, you know, their assorted crossovers, you know, most of them, uh, have this available. So that's pretty much the, the limit there. Yeah, that's it. Sorry. We don't have a lot of options for right. you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we also got one from Michael, who's a patron. Thank you very much, Michael. And Thank you you. Know, uh, we appreciate your patronage. Um, as a longtime listener and patron, I trust your expertise on all things automotive. Well, come on. If you've been listening that long, you should know better than that. But... <laughs> Nicely said there, Sam. I like that. <laughs> uh, for the past four plus years, I've been driving a Tesla Model 3, which is an excellent commuter, but bland to drive otherwise. Now that the California HOV sticker on the Tesla has expired, half of its reason for being is gone. Uh, further, I'm reaching a mini mid midlife crisis and want to change vehicles <laughs> later this spring. Earlier in my life, I drove mostly manual transmission cars. Yay! NB and NC Miata, 997-911, second Ooh. gen CTSV, uh, E60-535, um, E82-128, uh, and a Mark V GTI. Excellent, uh, yeah, excellent taste in cars. Nice little garage worth of cars yeah. there, my friend. Uh, I am thinking of, um, I'm thinking I'm ready to go back to daily driving a stick shift for the fun of it, even if that means a rougher commute. My budget is up to $40,000 newer used. Uh, the car needs four doors since it still needs to be practical and ferry my family of four. So far, my list includes the Hyundai Elantra N, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, Honda Civic SI, the Acura Integra Type A, Actually, I think that would be the Type S. No, the say, oh, the A spec, A spec, A spec, yeah, yes. A spec. Um, I haven't been able to find a Civic Type R remotely close to my price range, and that hasn't been modded. That hasn't been modded to almost grenading the engine. Uh, is it worth pushing my budget <laughs> to find a used manual ATSV, Cadillac ATSV? Um, I keep. Uh, keep up the great work on the podcast. Love all three of you, but would love to have some sort of reunion show. Bring back Dan and Rebecca. Working on that. Um, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention that I'm avoiding VW products after a not great experience with my last GTI. I also have had two BMWs with their rubbery shifters. So there should, so been there, done that. Uh, my last manual was a folk, was a Fiesta ST, which was awesome, but, uh, awesome fun, but too small for daily use. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think any of those choices that you mentioned, you know, the Civic SI, the Elantra N, um, the, uh, Integra A-Spec, uh, all great options. Um, you might consider, uh, you know, if you can find a used previous gen Civic Type R, um, that would be uh, also a great choice. Um, again, if you, especially if you can find one that's not modded, you know, find yeah. one that's completely stock. Um, let's see, what else is there with a manual? There's not a whole lot of options manuals, left. That, there's so few options out there for manual. And especially that $40,000 price point. Um, yeah. you know, otherwise, you know, I, I would, uh, consider, uh, you know, something like the BMW M2, but that's going to be a lot more than 40 grand. That is um, such a fun car though. It is. Do you want to break your oh. budget? Do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> but base... not with those seats. Those remember that they have those horrible. Oh yeah. Don't, don't get the carbon package. Seat? Yeah. Don't nobody, get the carbon nobody package. Nobody get the carbon package on that people. Nobody that's, yeah. I mean, Sam and I might not be right about everything, but do not. Get the carbon seats on that. Okay, continue. <laughs> um, you know, base Mustang GT um, is mm. right around forty. I think they, I think they're a little under forty. So that that's one to consider, and you can get yeah. that with the manual, uh, six speed manual. Um, you know, 
again, if you're if you're looking used, you'll have a few more options. Um, the ATSV, great option with a manual. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would absolutely consider one of those. Um, yeah, especially like the if you can. I don't know if a black an ATSV Blackwing, or sorry, the ATSV would be before the Blackwing badging. So yeah, that would be the previous generation. I was thinking of CT4V Blackwing, but yeah, the um, the manual ATSV fantastic option uh i i like that one if you can find one of those um and you probably you probably could get one of those for under 40 grand uh used because you I search around for yeah i bet yeah. you could yeah um so that would be a that would be a great one to consider but you know any of the other options are great as well yeah, I would agree. I, exactly what Sam said. And I'm happy that you're going. I love that your midlife in crisis, your midlife crisis involves going to back to a manual transmission <laughs> car. That somehow amuses me a lot. I approve. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Finally, we have Rich um, and uh, says, love the show. I would like to make a comment on an impression that I keep on getting from you guys when it comes to Elon and Tesla. It seems to me that lately, And I don't know if it has anything to do with his political affiliation, but a lot of people in the media have uh, seemed to have done a 180 on Elon and no longer look at him as an innovator and a pioneer when it comes to mainstreaming EVs. I just get the sense that you guys maybe subconsciously don't feel the same for him anymore. And I don't understand why you tend to bash him at times and make snarky comments when it comes to his products. He is on the forefront forefront of a new industry, taking chances and maybe doing things that's completely uh, coloring outside the lines. May not follow the mainstream, uh, but that's what makes him special and in my eyes, great. Uh, we need to leave politics out of this and judge the man, his product, and his ideas. I would rank him right up there with Steve Jobs. Remember, he is one of ours. He puts a lot of Americans to work and invests a lot of money in this country. We need to stay behind him and promote Tesla as one of the great EV manufacturers in the world. Just my opinion and my impression listening to you guys for the last few years. Okay. Well, I, I'm just going to go over here saying I'm normally the one that is arguing with Sam and Robbie dislike Elon, I think, more than I do, just on a personal Elon level. I think you guys aren't as much of an Elon fan as I am. Um, and I tend to be a little bit kinder to Tesla, I think, than you guys are, which is not an argument, just how we feel. I think we feel a little bit differently about the brand. Um I think it's, I think his politics get involved a lot, just not with our show, but with Elon in general. He's such a public figure and he makes it, he's, he's so out there and can be abrasive and just speaks his mind and says whatever he wants to say because he has a gazillion dollars and uh, doesn't care if you like what he says or not. And I think that impacts how a lot of people feel about him and his company. Um, I think, you know, the interesting thing is I think when you talk to people, um, even people that don't like Elon for a variety of reasons and don't like his politics and don't like his attitude, um, you know, who are critical and in many cases, rightly so, of some of the things that Tesla has done, will say, and I've even talked to some folks who are like really EV proponents within OEMs, that like as much as you can hate on him, electric vehicles are as well known and as accepted, at least here, is largely due to Elon Musk and the Tesla becoming such a big deal so fast. There was a long time where you said electric vehicle and you meant Tesla. And you said Tesla and you meant every EV. Like that was, they were synonymous. That was the only one out there. So I do think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, Definitely, Um, you know, he's done some things like building out the charging network for his vehicles. Um, when it was just open to Tesla's, I know it's opening up to others soon, uh, to the, with the, you know, the North American charging standard coming to everybody. Um, but I do think I, I, you know, 
I'm going to agree with you, Rich, that I do think he's a little bit Steve Jobs-ish. People love to hate on Steve Jobs because he was a personality and he, you know, but he was also did a lot of stuff that other people probably wouldn't have done. Sometimes guys that are kind of unlikable in many ways and a little bit and smart guys do stuff that ticks people off. And, but that sometimes ends up creating things that are kind of cool, like Tesla. Um, I don't think we all hate on him. I think some people are more critical of him than others. Um, but I'm not anti Elon Musk and I am definitely not anti Tesla. So my opinion is slightly different. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I actually agree with you on, on a number, quite a few things that you said, but there are things that I also disagree on. So first of all, um, I have, you know, my opinion of Elon has not really fundamentally changed in the 16, 17 years I've been covering Tesla, um, you know, from the time I first interviewed him back in 2008. Um, and I'll include a link to a copy of that interview. Um, it's quite lengthy, but um, you might find it interesting, you know, but some of the, and that also includes uh, some comments in there from uh, Martin Eberhard, who was actually one of the co-founders of Tesla. Elon was not a co-founder of Tesla. Um, that was, he was given that title later. Uh, he came along after the fact, you know, like, but uh, some, uh, almost a year after they actually incorporated the company. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I have always given Tesla enormous credit for legitimizing the idea of EVs as, um, as a, a mainstream uh, product that, you know, could work for anybody, you know, I mean, they've done more, more than anyone to demonstrate that, you know, EVs are not just glorified golf carts, you know, that they, that these can be utilized, you know, for, you know, for any purposes, you know, anything that you can use an internal combustion vehicle for, you can almost anything, you almost anything you can do with an uh, ICE, you can do with an EV. Um, there are still some, some, you know, edge exceptions, but for the most part, you know, almost anyone can drive an EV uh, as a daily driver and, and not really have an issue with that part of it. Um, you know, certainly what they've done with the charging network, you know, they deserve enormous credit for that. Um, you know, demonstrating that having a robust charging network is one of the keys to, to driving EV adoption. Um, you know, having interesting, you know, cars, you know, I'm not always crazy about their designs, but again, that's that's aesthetics. But they've they've done a lot of interesting things on the technology side in terms of the way the vehicles are architected, especially the electrical architecture and doing software defined. Um, you know, they have driven the entire auto industry forward, and they deserve tremendous credit for that. Um, but they've also done some things that I fundamentally disagree with, like their entire approach to putting safety critical software into the hands of consumers as experimental betas. This is not something you should ever do. You know, I think their, their, their approach is fundamentally wrong and flawed. And, um, you know, whether or not you can make a self-driving system with cameras only, you know, I'll set that argument aside for now, but just putting beta, beta safety critical software into the hands of untrained consumers, I think is a fundamentally bad idea. And, you know, I come at this as an, as an actual engineer, which uh, Elon Musk has no engineering degree. He's not an engineer. He's, he's a business guy. Um, I, you know, as an engineer that has worked on safety critical software for half of my career, 
you know, this, this is something I would never, um, I would never accept. Um, and so, you know, there's that. And also, you know, his, um, you know, his attitude towards others, you know, he, he is very much, um, you know, I, I, I have never felt that he was a, a good human being. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, he's always, you know, and this has nothing to do with being abrasive, you know? Yeah. It, Steve Jobs was prickly. Um, you know, nobody, nobody that knows Steve Jobs, you know, will argue with that. Um, not that I knew Steve Jobs, but I mean, you know, and, and everybody agrees that, you know, he had a, a, a prickly, prickly personality at times. He could be abrasive mm-hmm. and, you know, that's fine. I mean, every, everybody's got different personalities. Uh, I, I've certainly been, uh, abrasive at times and, you know, and <laughs> arguably, you know, some would argue maybe arrogant at times. I don't think you're too abrasive and arrogant, Sam. I would not characterize you that I, way. I mean, I've, I've, I've softened as I've gotten older. Okay, fine. <laughs> in, in my younger Young years. Sam was abrasive and arrogant. Okay, in, I'll give in, you that. In my, in my younger years, you know, I could, I was definitely, yeah, I could definitely be described as abrasive. Um, but, you know, the, I think one of the, the comparison to Steve Jobs, I think, is also fundamentally wrong. And I've written about this in the past and I've, in the last few years, I've tended to shy away from, from writing about Elon because it's just, you know, gets repetitive. But, um, you know, I think the fundamental difference between jobs and Musk is that while both had prickly personalities jobs, particularly in the years after he returned to Apple, you know, after he left Apple and then, you know, did next and Pixar and came back, he, he changed a lot. He grew up um, and he, he, he was a lot more self-aware and became, you know, came, came to the realization that there's, there's things that he likes to do and he was good at doing and that he, um, and there were also things that he didn't really care about. Um, that he knew that he was not the right person to handle those. And one of the the fundamental differences between these two men is that, you know, when, uh, when uh, Jobs came back to Apple in 1997, you know, he focused on, you know, helping to define the product, working with the design team, you know, making product planning decisions, you know, here's the products we're going to sell. Here's what they should look like. Here's how they should work. Um, and, Things like operations, logistics, um, you know, manufacturing, those were things that he knew were important, but that also weren't within his skill set. And, you know, he recognized and and delegated those responsibilities to people like Tim Cook, who is now the CEO. And, you know, he was he was not afraid to give, you know, to to give other people those responsibilities. You know, they were, you know, obviously they had the responsibility. He gave them the authority to do their jobs. Musk is not like that. He is not self-aware enough to recognize that there are things he is not good at. And he basically micromanages everything. And, you know, (laughs) ask anybody who's ever worked at Tesla and you will get the same responses. You know, he thinks he is the only one that can run these, these enterprises and he's the only one that can make decisions. And he, the the one exception to that has been at SpaceX, where he has let Gwen Shotwell actually run the operation on a day to day basis. But for the most part, he gets his hands in everything, for better and for ill. You know, sometimes it works out; a lot of times it doesn't. Um, you know, and 
while Tesla does employ a lot of people, and that's great, I appreciate that. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, the the coal industry also employs a lot of people. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's a lot of industries that employ a lot of people that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to promote that. Uh, you know, they, they don't, you don't get a free pass, you know, for, for the bad things you do because of the good things you do, you know, Tesla, uh, in particular, you know, we've heard a lot about racism and misogyny in their factories and their offices, um, you know, people getting mistreated, um, you know, and, you know, his vehement, uh, um, opposition to, you know, in the early days of the pandemic to, you know, any sort of, you know, temporary shutdowns, masking, vaccinations, you know, I, I think he's, you know, there, there's a lot about him as a person that I think is very problematic, regardless of his politics, you know, and, you know, I, I don't agree with his politics either, but this is something long before he turned, you know, to being a far right troll, you know, was, was very problematic. And so this is why I, I don't like Elon Musk. I appreciate what Tesla has done. I appreciate what SpaceX has done. Uh, but, you know, like for example, the Boring Company, you know, the Boring Company exists only because, and the Hyperloop, it, you know, was, was promoted only as a means to try to derail high-speed rail projects, you know, and mass transit projects, which are much, you know, much more, you know, mass transit, especially much more cost-effective and useful than something like the boring company. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, I don't like him. I appreciate a lot of what the companies have done. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Any, any final thoughts? No final thoughts. You spoke your piece. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. And, you know, regardless of how I feel about Elon, I hope you all keep listening, you know, tell your friends, you know, to, to listen to the show, send in your thoughts. You know, we want to, even if you disagree with us, we want to hear what you think. Uh, and ask and Sam less questions to get him less fired up. The man's actually, <laughs> he's fired up people. Don't sit him on his way all fired up. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, this is, this is a long one. Um, yeah. With just, even with just the two of us, you know, got, got a lot of content this week. We did. And we will, uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.